And now, our feature presentation. I like it spooky. Hey everybody, welcome to the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Jason. I'm Clint. And in just a little bit, we are going to be joined by actor, writer, producer, and interview extraordinaire, Justin Beam from Reverend Entertainment. But first, let's get to the news. It's the most wonderful time of the year coming up. Part of the most wonderful time of the year. I'm looking at an article here that Spirit Halloween, they are looking for staff. They are hiring right now. Their flagship store opens July 29th, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. So if you're on the East Coast, go to that. I'd be super jealous. I would love to go to a, a Spirit Halloween event sometime. Uh, so that just means that they're getting closer to putting everything out. Hopefully they got some cool exclusives this year. I'm also seeing that there's a code orange going on at home. <laughs> Brian's looking at me weird. <laughs> what the fuck's a code orange? Code orange. That means Halloween stuff is being cited in stores at home, which we don't have one around here. They are starting to get their Halloween shit. Our closest one, I think, is Peoria from us. The wife and I will be making a trip here in the next week or two to get down there, kind of see what they got. They're, they're always early about putting their stuff out. I always say mid-July is a good range to look at it. But hell, as of recording right now, we're not even halfway through June and we're already getting shit coming out. So that's... It's big time for me. I'm I'm super excited. What's that? First of all, New Jersey gets all the cool shit. You know, I talked about moving out of Michigan one day. Maybe it's going to be to Jersey. I liked it when I was there. Uh, let's see. Second of all, I had no idea what the hell at home was, but I thought you meant like at your home. And then there was this pause. And so I'm like, what, what, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> air quality level because canada's on fire what is he talking about but i think that halloween stuff is also starting to creep into michael's joanne fabrics stuff like that it's it's already starting to pop up everywhere yeah i haven't seen any reports of that i watch a lot of youtube videos where people go out hunting that stuff i go a little bit i'm not radical about it we always like to go and buy a few things but it just kind of shows it we're getting closer and closer to that time of year i'm not trying to hurry summer again but like I was trying to hurry July on the last episode. It's, you know, I, I, I know it has. You were trying to hurry August. You were like, fuck July. Right. Yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm ready for flashback. Let's go. But no, I'm excited for the Halloween stuff. So, I mean, Spirits Halloween or hiring. They got their flagship store. We're seeing all the products come out. So gets me super excited. I really wanted to talk about this on the news podcast or the news part of the podcast. Ah, I'm so excited. I can't even like speak. Words efficiently. <laughs> I know um, I hate seeing seasonal stuff extremely early, and it does seem like regardless what the holiday is, it's starting to come out even earlier. Uh, but obviously the Halloween stuff, I'm excited, so I'll accept that. But do you know there's a place where you can go all year round? It happens to be in Clinton Township in Michigan. It's called Screamers Costumes, and it is an all year round Halloween store. Ding. Yeah, I need to get up there. 
You know, when I say I'm going to come, I don't really come. And then what sucks for you is it's like a cry wolf thing now. Cause now you're going to be like, Hey Clint, I'm going to be up. And I'm like, whatever. You're going to show up knocking on my door. I'm not answering. <laughs> <laughs> Please let me in. I won't touch your toys. <laughs> so that's what I got. It, it's not anything like major, but it's, you know, major for me. And I got something major. Do the YouTubers you watch say, Code Orange, Code Orange. Oh, yeah. Search Code Orange. It'll pop up. Oh, God. Brian, it's my passion, okay? I guess. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is a Code Orange? Is that like I had too much fucking pumpkin pie and I can't go out of the house for the day? <laughs> too much Halloween candy? My tummy hurts. Mm. <laughs> I have big news. Well, it's big news for me. It's big news for anybody that collects physical media. TerraVision is upping their game. So TerraVision is a company that I, I own all their stuff. I'm that dedicated. And we have a friend who may be a guest on the show later that works for TerraVision. They separated from Vinegar Syndrome. They were one of their partner labels. And they're upping their game on the physical media front. They've got 350 movies in their pocket. They're going from a $200 subscription level, which they will have for 10 movies. And then you go to 400 and some for 20 and so on. You get to 50 and it's $1,000 for the next year, year and a half. But they have movies from all genres, all countries, ready to go for the next several years, it sounds like. And I will own all of them. What do you guys think? I think that I know you'll own all of them because you showed me that you gave them $1,000. I did, yeah. And all I could think of is that song where you want to be a baller shot caller. And I mean, you look, if you get their emails, they go through and they have one through 50 and they give you like a hint. On each one, 40 is a Slashers, 80 Slashers Blu-ray premiere. The next one is a disc premiere, disc premiere. A lot of these movies are disc premieres. Maybe not what you would consider mainstream, but I mean, a lot of stuff that I feel like I'll enjoy and Clint would probably enjoy and we would drag Jason along to watch at some point. But I'm just excited for a lot of these movies to get, you know, some action, get some spotlight and be seen. Maybe somebody will find their new favorite movie. Well, and from what I gather, it sounds like TerraVision. I mean, there's a lot of great film companies out there, a lot of great distribution companies out there. It sounds like TerraVision is, uh, and I can't really put my finger on it or say specifically, but they're approaching things a little bit differently. So I'm really excited to see. And I mean, it's like almost overnight growth. I mean, I think we just became aware of them not even a year ago, and now they've got their own podcast and you know they put a team together and they're just doing a lot of really cool stuff. Very excited to see what's going to be coming from TerraVision. They were excited to see my money. <laughs> no, I'm excited for you too. That's, you know, find something you like, support it, help them grow, be in it from the ground. I mean, you're doing it all right. And I like TerraVision too. They, they're putting out some good stuff. I own some of their records, some of their movies. I don't know if I'm subscriber level just because I'm like, I'm not that rich. Brian's, you know, he, he rolls around in hundreds. I was going to say, it's not like from, from the ground zero of our friendship, either you guys gave me a $1,000 or anything. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got for news, old newsmaster Clint? 
news you know it's actually pretty hard now that i do the spill the guts segment and um i'm sure you guys have noticed that i share a lot more news into uh, our news chat uh so it's hard to pick what to cover because i i want to talk about this on both everybody knows i'm a huge romero fan i'm a huge creep show fan and exclusive from cbr.com exclusive creep show returns for a new volume with enos clunan and more so uh last september creep show came out with a new five issue comic series and this september they're doing the same thing we're gonna have another five issue comic series from skybound for creep show i cannot wait to spend my money on this <laughs> so your news is also appearing on an upcoming episode of why are we so poor it, exactly it all ties together it might be you know right now it's on this news it might wind up being on spill the guts news it's going to be on why are we so poor it's going to be on an unboxing video it's going to be on my wall it's going to be in my collection i cannot wait i tell you the, the last creep shows you know what's funny the last creep show series uh, I, I bought all the comics uh, most of the variant covers uh, i still haven't read any of them i just haven't had any time everybody tells me that the stories are really good yeah, are they going to have any variants has it gone in to say that yet? I'm sure they will. Yeah, here, here we go. Here we go. Creepshow Volume 2, number one, features cover art by, oh, wow, I can't pronounce his name, but his last name is March. Sorry, Mr. March. Uh, variant cover art by Clunan and Incentive Connecting Variant Cover by Skinner will release September 12th, 2023. So, yeah, they're all going to have multiple variant covers again. Nice. Are you going to try and chase all of them? I am. Initially, last you know this this last time last year, I was no, nah, I'm not going to do that. But then when I wandered into my comic store, Nostalgia Inc. in Jackson, Michigan, ding, you know they had two or three of them, and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, oh, why the hell not? You know, I'll get them since I'm here. But I didn't actively try to get all of them, uh, but I have quite a few, and I'll do the same thing this time. If those are unopened comics, you know they're unused. If you never read them, they're unused. Kind of like Jason's posters. If you never hang them on the wall, they're unused posters. Oh, my God. <laughs> you remember that conversation, Clint? <laughs> do, I do. So is, that, is that a used poster that you're selling, sir? Like, what? I know. I was actually looking at Facebook this morning, and somebody was selling some posters, and they actually listed that they've all been displayed. And I'm like, oh, may, this must be a thing. If you display it, it's not pristine anymore. I was, the only thing I can think of is, is maybe... Um, even if it's protected, you know, in a nice frame or whatever, is I wonder if time over time, you know, natural UV light, sunlight can maybe fade the coloring. Maybe that's what people are concerned about. But Jesus Christ, I mean, I, hey, hashtag save the box. But if you can't buy a poster and display it, there's something wrong. I also, I found out some pretty cool, this is more news that we're going to talk about here in a second. I found out something about one of the things I talked about on one of the past Why Are We Pours. Let's go to a new Why Are We Pours so I can tell you about it. I've got a couple pretty sweet pickups. One thing I picked up a while back that I totally forgot to talk about, or maybe I did on our lost episode. You got to keep bringing that up, don't you? <laughs> mm -hmm. I've talked before about Josh and his bootleg toys, but this company that's near and dear to my heart, inkmirrors.com, has some bootleg toys also that I love. And I picked this one up in Detroit at Motor City Legacy. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, uh, but I got the Ben Tramer Halloween 2 figure. And he is toasty. 
looks so good. <laughs> I already got it in my six by nine card protector. I've already had it hanging on the wall, so it is used. Sorry. I mean, if anybody tries to buy it from me. But yeah, I picked that up and I totally forgot to mention it. That's super cool that you have that in a case. That actually, um, I'm humbled. Thank you. I love it so much. I need to get some more of these cases. So maybe coming soon on why are we so poor? But they're freaking expensive. I swear I bought them cheaper. If if you come across some sort of like bulk deal that you want to go in on, because I'm going to need some as well. Let, let me know what you come up with. Maybe we can go have these. Yeah, I think we need to do that because, yeah, I'll probably grab more. I'll just even stick them in a box somewhere until I actually need them because I've got those on a future episode, I got some Fright Rags figures to talk about whenever I receive them. So, and I see people are receiving those, so hopefully soon. Also picked up a autograph 8x10 of Brad Laurie from Halloween. I don't know. I'm a fake fan. He's, was, this, was, this, was, this, was this resurrection? <laughs> Dude, I cannot. like. I, I love Halloween, and I used to know everything about it, and I still know a lot. But now it's like all of them are mashing together. When we talk about, you know, four, I know. But then when you go five, six, seven, it's like, okay, which is which? What? Who is what? Oh, my God. They're they're just blending together. But a Brad Laurie autograph. The only thing you need to remember is Paul Rudd, part six. That's it. That's all you need to remember. And that's the curse of Michael Myers. But, yeah, I don't remember who is Michael in what movie now. And there's so many of them. And quick refresher, and I would know. I should have, like, you know, I'm not overprepared for this podcast. You also uh, uh, you also need to remember that Brent Edgett was Michael Myers in Friday the 13th fan film Roseblood. I got his signature, too. So, yeah, I'm set. Brad Laurie. Was Halloween Resurrection. Resurrection is what I was thinking, but I didn't want to be wrong. And he was born in Canada? Blame Canada. <laughs> so Brad Laurie was at actually at a uh, flashback last year. And I wanted to go up and meet him, but I spent a ton on other stuff. And I'm like, eh, I, I'm not trying to put down like some of the actors, but sometimes you can pick up autographs cheaper than directly from them. And, you know, I didn't really need that, you know, 30 second encounter with them to spend more money. And it, it sounds lame. I should support them for coming out and doing that. But uh, I picked this up on eBay and it was a good deal. Well, especially if he says, oh, did you like me in Halloween Resurrection? And you're like, oh, that's what fucking movie you're oh, in. Oh, that's I, right. Resurrection. I remember. <laughs> I love your hockey mask. Yeah. Wearing your Halloween shirt and Halloween underwear and Halloween socks and <laughs> pants and fucking Halloween 2 jacket and can't remember who who's who in Halloween 6 or whatever fucking one that was. Resurrection. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all I got for right now. That's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep it to just a few items instead of talking for half an hour. To we love you, Jason. You set yourself up for a thrashing on that one. Though, so. <laughs> oh, I know it. I know. <laughs> I didn't get anything this episode. I've been actually trying to sell stuff to make room, but I'm a vinegar syndrome subscriber and that wasn't supposed to be here till Tuesday. And the mailman pulled up the other day and dropped it off. I was like, oh, that's good. And this was a big month. We got the Undefeated, which is a 4K. I always like the back better. The Boogeyman, which is another 4K. You haven't got a prayer. I don't even know what the hell that is on the back. <laughs> Night Screams. Tonight their cries will fall on deaf... Oh, dead ears. That's pretty cool. They're cooking a eyeball on a cheeseburger on the front there. There's a back. A rubber ducky and a nightlight on the back. What? Just... Okay. It looks very 80s, but just between the hamburger, the rubber ducky, the busted light, and the eyeball, I gotta watch it now so I can... How does all this fit together? It probably doesn't. Yeah, at the end, they're like, gotcha. 
Village of the Damned, Three Horrors from Spain. That one's pretty cool. I can't pronounce any of the names of the movies, but I'm interested to watch that. Hard hardcover and slipcover and a little book about them. And then this is the coolest one. A Blade in the Dark. There's the front. Hmm. There's the back. And it opens like that. Oh. I like the point perspective artwork in that. It makes it look like that knife is really perpendicular to the packaging. That's cool. Then there's a naked lady on the back. Oh, if you guys want to see what we're talking about, make sure you check out Brian's videos on YouTube and TikTok, where I'm sure he'll be dancing around holding these vi- these movies he's showing us right now. I don't know that I can show the booby on YouTube. Maybe TikTok looks like grape jelly kind of on her hand. I had breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Clint? What did you get? That's all I got. You know, the past few episodes I've been poor in this episode that main that's it's I'm still really poor. But some of the stuff that I've ordered is actually starting to show up. So I ordered the Art the Clown action figure, the five inch Art the Clown from Trick or Treat Studios. And that showed up just in time for me to get signed at Screamers Costumes 25th anniversary by David Howard Thornton, Art the Clown. Pretty cool stuff. The last episode where we covered Kingdom of the Spiders. I opened the episode with saying, it's June. Does anybody know where your Stevie Wayne action figure is? Because I sure in the hell don't. Actually, a day or two before that episode actually aired, it showed up. So I do have the Stevie Wayne action figure now. Jason, I believe you said something about when I got it that I'd be thanking you or kissing your boot or something like that. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to kiss your boot, but I am going to thank you. It is a very beautiful piece. I'm glad that uh, I finally have it. As far as money spent Right now, though, I really shouldn't have done this because, again, I'm just kind of going through a kind of a weird transition financial period right now. But I threw some money towards the visionary documentary and back that film. If anybody's been paying attention the past, I don't know, month or so, I've been trying to push it on social media for them. It is going to be a documentary coming out in 2024 about George Atkinson, who was the first guy in 77 to start renting VHS movies. And um, I don't know what it was when I came across it. I just fell in love with it. And I was like, this is something I want to see. And they were kind of nearing the end of their Kickstarter campaign. And with Kickstarter, it's all or nothing. And so I I kept looking at it and I wanted to get in as a producer, but I just didn't have that disposable cash at the moment. So I'm watching the the Kickstarter campaign and it got down to like maybe an hour and a half to go. So I I threw them a couple hundred bucks and I, I put them over the top. But here's the thing I told you I was going to tell you about. I found out recently that there is, remember I t- when I was at Creature Feature Weekend earlier this year, and I had Tim Balm sign my um, 48 of 50 brain dead, dead alive action figure. He said he had never seen it before. I don't think he was lying. I just think someone got to him after I did because there is someone else I found on Facebook that has the exact same toy with his signature and they're selling it right now. And I just thought that was interesting. Theirs is like five. Theirs is like five of fifty. So, so now there's at least two of them out there. Hey, it's still rare. I can add some key scratches to it and make it a one on one again. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. I've seen you in action. <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm happy you got your fog figure. Mine is uh, still saying label created. <laughs> so it had, I don't even know if the damn thing is shipped yet. And I know I ordered mine before you. Like I know it. And I'm like, oh, whatever. It seems like I have that luck. I get that a lot of times where it'll say label created and it'll sit for over a week until it finally. Oh, yeah, it's almost here. I'm hoping sometime this week I will get it. I hope so, too, because I know anytime I've ex- I don't mean to freak you out, but anytime I've experienced that where I'm 
checking tracking and everything and that pops up it's lost somewhere a few times it just shows up late but i've had times where i've had to reorder stuff and that's limited so all right well cool if you if you never get yours because they were limited to four thousand, and someone stole yours and that's why you're not going to get it i'll make sure to put mine in a locked package the next time you come over (laughs) a locked display case here's one other thing i wanted to show off it's a little meat it's a little meat cleaver is it sharp uh yeah Oh, not like not like a cleaver sharp. No, no, but it's like it's pointed and sharp. Tiffany bought it for me. She's like, "Here's your uh, novelty Father's Day gift to put on your keychain." And I'm like, uh, "Do I look like I need a meat cleaver to put on my keychain?" And she's like, "Yeah." She, I think she ordered it off Sheen. I mean, it's kind of cool. Now you're going to end up stabbing your junk when it's in your pocket. Well, it's got a little leather carrying case. Protected. Well, that's really cute. Thank you for trampling all over my segue into a sponsorship. So I'll just take. <laughs> I'll just take it right back to it. I was going to say that I found the guy, the other person who has is selling the, you know, a uh, brain dead toy. He's selling it for 600. I thought about dropping mine down to $599 just so I could sell it to make some money. But then I was like, nah, I'm going to keep it because we'll just take it to a sponsor. I'm going to need a sponsor to get stitches from stabbing myself in my balls with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the two day spooky season extravaganza event. Halloween Palooza is coming back to scenic downtown Ottumwa, Iowa, Friday, October 13th, and gets worse on Saturday the 14th at the Bridgeview Event Center. And now is the time to join their first announced guest, Tom Matthews. The crew behind the event are looking for sponsors, vendors, and film submissions for Iowa's only horror film showcase film festival. For more info, get over to Halloweenapalooza.com. Now that we've heard from our sponsor, we are joined here in the spooky studio by actor, writer, producer, interview extraordinaire, and hugger. Yes, folks, he's a hugger. Justin Beam of Reverend Entertainment. Actor. Well, no, so... <laughs> I want. I wanted to touch on that because if you look at your IMDb, there are no acting credits listed. But I believe that you have some in front of the camera experience, don't you? Thank you guys for having me on. I really do appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's been a nice show. Yeah. No, I. Well, first of all, it is great to be here. You guys are amazing, and I am so thrilled at how you guys have continued with this program. It's. Uh, I remember back at um, doing the live show you guys did at Halloween of Palooza, and such a great natural rapport among the three of you. And it's just amazing here. I don't know how many months later we are that you guys are still kicking with this thing. It's awesome. So thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. On the acting front, it's really more of like if a friend needs someone to be a body in a film, for the most part, they're like, hey, the guy who was going to play the cop didn't show up. Can you come over for a while? And I'll be like, all right, all right, all right, let's go. So that's really what it's all been. With Sharknado, Anthony reached, it's like, you want to die on a beach? I'm like, yes. So I show up, whatever it is, it's that. But uh, yeah, there there are a few things here and there. I think a couple of them might have snuck onto IMDb, but for the most part, it's usually pretty small stuff, bit things where I just get killed and then I'm gone. So it's like, well, that's not really a credit for me. Yeah, a little bit here and there, I guess. So now you just brought up the live we did together last October at uh, Halloween of Palooza in Ottumwa, Iowa. And when we did that live recording, you mentioned something about answering an ad in the paper and participating in the film 
collapse from prescribed films. Is that right? Yeah. Would that be like your first acting credit? Yeah, I think so. Outside of the stuff that my friends and I made when we were little, and we used to rent a video camera at the grocery store here in town, and we'd shoot stuff in our backyards with, we knew one guy who had a gorilla costume, so a gorilla was in every film somehow, and we just made all this goofy shit when we were little. Outside of that, though, I mean, yeah, it was, Collapse was a big deal. Mike and Jason were a big deal, frankly. When I, pure accident that I happened upon that ad saying, looking for extras for zombie movie, show up in Iowa City on whatever date at this time. I didn't know. And and it was an audition process, which I thought was kind of hilarious that they, <laughs> zombies, I mean, so I, I went there and I did this little thing and they're like, yeah, let's, let's do it. And so we uh, showed up in West Branch, Iowa. And I found that these guys making this movie, I'd never been near any film production set at all before. I didn't know Mike and Jason at that point of prescribed films and they had taken over West Branch. It was really incredible. If you, I mean, if you guys haven't had them on here to tell that story, have Mike and Jason on together at the same time and have them tell the collapse story because it's amazing and it's beautiful. They rolled out the red carpet for them in West Branch, Iowa. It's a small town. It's actually where the Herbert Hoover Museum is. That's basically what would draw anyone there. But it's also this town, the foliage is a real legitimate canopy all across the town, big rolling hills. The main street comes down. It's a great kind of vista perspective with little coffee shops and a bank on the side. And I was absolutely floored that here in Iowa, half an hour from where I was living at that time was a full-fledged movie being made. I was so impressed. And then I got to sent to the trailer and Toby Sells and his team were doing makeup on me and I learned how to use coffee to make bruising and I had like a million questions for everyone in the room you know this is amazing and at that point I had been writing for some regional music magazines and things in the past a drum magazine here and there never anything really super film associated outside of uh, a couple little local groups that I tried to start back in Illinois years prior bumped into Linnea Quigley there and met her briefly and then Mike and Jason and then I learned about this film group that they had that was meeting in Iowa City every month once a month it's the Iowa Digital Filmmakers Guild and it was really a, a resource and community I don't know what you call it a group meet where people would show up and share their projects and ask for help from others. And, Hey, I need to get a camera. Anybody have any advice? Or here's my short, give me some feedback. It was so amazing. And I started working and we're being a part of different people's movies. There were these guys, bad influence cinema out of Marion. And I ended up being a PA on that grip on that. And here, next thing I know, I'm on the roof of this old fur storage building down by the Cedar river across from Quaker Oats hanging lights over the edge of buildings. <laughs> and, uh, it, it was, it just became this wild adventure, but the greatest gift far and away was meeting Mike and Jason and getting absorbed and welcomed into their prescribed films family. And then becoming a part of some of the movies they were making from shorts to features like Demonica. This led to the Linnea Quigley thing, meeting her led to a spark of an idea to do a Night of the Demons article. Cause I'm a huge Night of the Demons fan. And once I started reaching out to people on that, I realized, I had no breaks and it's like it was so exciting I'm, oh I got this I got Kevin I got and next thing you know I have the whole cast and then I'm on to part two and then part three and I ended up writing this massive article with no end game in mind that uh, I ended up sending on to uh, Fangoria and that's the article that got me into Fangoria. So I, I tell all of that in one chunk for you just to sort of illustrate that what began with that ad ultimately led to 
everything. So Mike and Jason and the inspiration I found in their universe, in the PF universe, in the IDFG universe is really the seed that grew into what I do now. Yeah. Sorry for the long answer, but that's these guys I love dearly. And um, I will always give them props for opening all these doors, whether they knew they were or not <laughs> for me. So first off, you're on the show now, so I don't have to talk you into being on the show. But just to let you know, when we covered Night of the Demons, I kicked off the show with, I rate this movie a 10. End of the show. You know, and the guys kind of looked at me like, what? You know, I love that movie too. Uh, I wonder, did did they, uh, do you think that the, um, the audition process for Collapse was to make sure that it wasn't like stiff Romero lumbering zombies with arms out? I mean, did they have like a specific look they were going for? Because yeah, that's kind of an odd thing to audition for a zombie role. Yeah, I think it was. I don't really, and I'm wondering if I'm conflating two different experiences because we had, there were auditions in Iowa City and I think it was for, I think it was for Collapse and it was really more just like, go meet them. And they wanted to look at you and they took a couple pictures and I think they were kind of looking for, I'm going to guess a variety of people. They don't just want a bunch of skinny guys who were whatever, like, you know, I was that. Then there were older people. There were, I think they just wanted the diversity of, because Mike is such, he has such reverence for Romero and that's one of his gods, I guess, his Mount Rushmore guys. And if you look at the original night, part of what works so well in that is that it feels so natural and organic because there, there's no, you don't even see casting, I guess you'd quote unquote with that. It's, they were just gathering locals, people who would be in the area. So it's almost as if they were organically pulling people out of the ground in that area and making them into these ghouls. And I think that that was probably Mike's goal with that was just to pre- present some diversity and a real organic approach to how his creatures were going to look as we're stumbling around town. And if you haven't seen Collapse, it has an amazing twist. It's got a great cast. It's leads. Um, I mean, it, it's just such, such a good movie. I don't want to give too much of it away, but the zombie aspect of it that Mike wrote, I think, is really creative. And this was at a time when the zombie thing hadn't yet become overflow like it is now. Back then, it, I mean, it was very fresh. And so when we were doing the zombie thing, Mike was coaching us there. When we, After we come out of the trailer, we're all lined up in the street. And here's Mike saying, don't be the... Uh, he didn't want the hands out. He didn't want the Frankenstein, which those two have been kind of blended over time in a lot of movies. He wanted it to be like Romero. He's like, find your thing. And so I kind of cocked to the side like my spine had been broken. And that was my thing. Someone else had a real shuffle dragging their foot, whatever it might be. But Mike was very, very keen on how we were looking and acting. That was Mike's baby. And, uh, he coached us well. I remember watching an interview with Romero and he was kind of joking. He says, you know, he would get a, a cast of zombies together because they were looking for direction. And he said, all I had to do was go like this and put my arms out. And then all of a sudden, you know, a thousand people are putting their arms out. It's like, no, I'm just giving you an example. But they're like, no, that's what the king said to do. So we're all going to do this. You know? <laughs> yeah, I've seen that interview. Yeah, I haven't seen Collapse. I need to get a hold of Mike and uh, Jason to see how I can see that film. But I've been trying to get that real distribution. It was shuffled off onto a company that has a name you can't pronounce onto DVD. That that was embroiled in this whole thing. That's really unfortunate for Mike and Jason that I won't go into too deeply. But there was a crazy scandal involving the Iowa Film Office and uh, some, some less than... There was some nefarious stuff done in terms of taking advantage of the Iowa film program that resulted in it shutting down. And unfortunately, Collapse kind of got rolled into that. And as a result of that, it ended up with a like a, literally a distributor that I'm not even sure is real. <laughs> it had There is a DVD of it out there. It has international distribution. There's a pretty wild, I think, Japanese cover that I want to say has explosions and maybe even airplanes flying through and stuff, none of which is in the film. But here in the States, it's 
I do believe it's streaming. They're, the cover that these people put on it had a girl who wasn't even in the movie on it. And she has like a zipper face, you know, that kind of generic zipper face makeup that was hot for a minute at haunts back in the day. Anyway, she's not really in the film. And then I think it was released as Collapse of the Living Dead, I want to say. So if you're looking for it, look for either Collapse or Collapse of the Living Dead and you should be able to find it. It may be streaming. And there's also a, a score CD that's been released of this Vincent, I can't remember his last name, that did the music did a great job but yeah if you touch base with mike and jason they'll find a way to get you the best version of it i'm glad you brought up the uh meaty linnea writing the article and sending it to fangoria and that's kind of what got you started into what you're doing now because i was going to ask between collapse and i mean everything you're involved with now was your mini doc you can't kill the boogeyman in 2012 was that kind of your arrival yeah it probably would have been in a way at that point what happened was the fangoria then led to everything else. So if there's three people that I point to at this point in my life, it'd be Mike Jason and then Chris Alexander. Chris was the was the incoming editor at Fango at the point where I reached out. And I caught wind from someone that Chris was going to be taking over as editor. And uh, Tony Timpone, of course, the legend, had been there forever. And he was moving on into a more ceremonial role with the brand for a variety of reasons. And Chris was coming in. And I, I had sent the article to Chris saying, it's been my dream to write for this magazine all my life. It's, it was my Bible when I was a kid. Chris welcomed me. Although that article never got published, it was just this grossly bloated thing that still hasn't found print because it's just too big. Even to break it into parts, it's absolutely massive. Although I, I did end up selling it to Scream Magazine in the UK. So Scream may at some point publish it. But anyway, the point of this is just to say that Chris then said, yeah, what else have you got? And I have and I had nothing. You guys may remember telling you the story that he's like, what else have you? And I uh, made a list of articles I'd love to write, none of which I actually had. And he's like, great, I'll take all of them or whatever. And I'm like, oh shit. So I had to put the pedal to the floor and quickly come up with all these different articles. And I was off to the races. In that flow, at some point, maybe a year or so later, a couple years later, I was doing an article on the Halloween four through six story arc for Fango. It's a fascinating chapter within that within that series that uh, is kind of unexplored to some extent. I know five is really misunderstood and not liked by a lot of people. Six, I mean, what a departure, the whole cult thing and all that. So anyway, I thought it would be a fascinating story to tell those. And I, through that process, I scored an interview with Malik Akkad at Trancus Films, whose his dad was Mustafa, and that's Halloween, right? John, Irwin, and Mustafa. And Malik and I really hit it off, and I never even finished writing that article because I got so distracted by this great new relationship with him. And uh, we became very fast friends. And next thing you know, he's bringing me out to LA. I'm part of his company. And then I'm doing, first it was the website in the store. And then it was on to vice president of new media. And then I really pushed for Halloween four and five on Blu-ray. At that point, they hadn't yet been beyond DVD. And there had been a bunch of different DVD iterations of them over time, but Blu-ray was really coming into its own. So we're like, okay, we got them, we got Anchor Bay to agree to do the Blu-rays on it, but no one wanted to spend any money on it. So I was like, we got to have something new. And I can't remember what year these came out. My memory is really bad with years and dates. So if this predates, it, it would predate Boogeyman, I'm almost certain. And um, I got commentaries. I did commentaries on these. On four, it was with Dwight Little, the director. And on five, it was with Don Shanks, who played 
like Michael, and there, there had never been a, a Dwight commentary on four or a Michael Myers commentary on anything prior to that. So those were so much fun to do. And that was really my first physical media, special feature production, I guess you'd say, would be those two. And then I ended up doing some other things for, like um, Michael Felcher brought me in to tackle interview interviews with Alice Cooper and John Carpenter on Prince of Darkness. And then I also ended up doing the commentary on the town that dreaded sundown. These are all for Shout Factory as well. So that was kind of the beginning. That was the genesis there. And th- there was all this talk of there being a new Halloween in theaters. And what'd you say, 2012 is when Boogeyman happened? And nothing was happening. It was unclear if it was going to be a sequel to Rob's, if it was going to be something new, if it was, I mean, there were all kinds of things being shuttled around. And obviously I was only so close to any of that. <laughs> I was so on the outside of any of those key discussions about this stuff. But I was like, why don't we put the original one back in theaters? What if we were to find a way to get this back out there? And then it became this process of trying to find a distributor that got it. And there were no boutique bookings happening on a nationwide basis outside of like ballet and symphony stuff, I think maybe at that point. But Screen Vision was the one that took the bait. Those guys completely got it. They they really got it. But they wanted some additional content to really offer people an extra reason to show up. And then it became You Can't Kill the Boogeyman, which was this little 10-minute documentary short that I had that ran before it everywhere. It, the original concept that I had was to interview with everyone who played Michael that I could find, telling the story like Michael behind the mask kind of a thing from the kids to the adults to Tyler to Nick. I mean, you name it. I wanted to have all the faces in there and present something that that's genuinely different, not just John telling the same story for the hundredth time, not just whatever. The thought internally was that that might not fly. I don't know. It might not be that interesting. So it's like, you need to figure this out. And so I don't know that I've ever told this story before, but uh, the night before we were start to start or a couple days before we were start shooting came the edict to basically redo the whole concept and so I went, I was in LA at the time and I holed up at a Days Inn in Burbank and I sat there for two days just writing and researching. And I, and so I decided to make it about the cultural presence of the boogeyman around the world and how that translates to Michael in the States, kind of, for some people, for a lot of people, where a lot of places uh, he's, it's like for what I said in there, finger wagging at the young, you know, if you don't make your bed. The boogeyman's going to come and knock on your window tonight, or the sack man will come and steal you in your sleep or whatever. But here, kids are getting, or not kids, people are getting tattoos of the boogeyman on their arm. We're wearing shirts with him on him, and we have toys on our shelves with him. So I thought that whole thing was fascinating, and that's what boogeyman was. So on a grander scale, I think you're exactly right that that, that would have been my first production, and I still didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I, I remember sitting down with the editor at the Trancus office, and he's like, what have you got? And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin with this. I had no clue. It shows it's, I think, forever locked in a vault somewhere, which is probably a good thing at this point. But as a final note on this, the best part about it was I got my buddy Tim Edwards to come in and do the score, which is beautiful. And we need to do something with it at some point. But also my my friend and Andy Devoff, who played the Wishmaster, the Jin in the Wishmaster films. Andy's a dear friend. Man, we have a lot of history and the best voice. I think, in the history of horror. If not, he's in the top two, three. And so he did the voiceover for it. So here's me and, it, and my friend Tim doing the audio engineering in this little room, an office at the Trancus studio. And here's Andy sitting there with a mic, reading my script. I have pictures, I have video of little bits of this, right? I'm like shooting off to the side so it's not too obvious. And it's the most amazing thing. When you're sitting in a room, here's your compose, the composer here, and then you're hearing your words and then you hear... 
The boogeyman comes in the night with Andrew Devoff's voice. It was absolutely incredible. And, he, and then Andy would be like, and the sec, whatever, he'd do his thing and then he'd turn to me and be like, what was, how was that? I think I can do it better. And, and Tim and I are just sitting there in awe, like this could not be better. There is no way that this could be any better on any front. This is absolutely incredible. For so many personal reasons, that was a real incredible experience. And um, I owe Malik, he's the, the fourth player in this story, is that um, being a part of Frankus, getting the chance to do Boogeyman, being a part of all, learning all about the licensing and the everything I learned there, um, that you you could never learn that any other way. And he opened the door to a guy from Iowa that had no right doing what I was doing. It was an amazing experience that opened so many more doors. So I'm so grateful to all these guys. Yeah. First off, I'd love to see that. We should start a petition drive or a Kickstarter or something to unvault this because that's not the first time I've heard about it and I'd love to see it. You started that off with uh, Chris Alexander. And I just wanted to say real quick that right before we started recording right now, I just saw pictures of him with uh, Roger Corman and I was super jealous jealous but hey he's he's earned it yeah chris just released a book on corman's poe movies and it and he was doing a signing yesterday in burbank with roger roger doesn't do a lot of that anymore so for for chris to get him on board for being there to sign a few things is just amazing and so yeah definitely pick up that book i think it's just called corman and poe or something like that but it just came out definitely worth buying chris is an i mean it goes without saying an amazing writer very passionate he's been a friend of rogers for a long time and when i first needed to connect with roger years before it was chris who connected me with him so yeah pick that book up well and i tell you what corman i mean i can't remember his exact age but i mean he's getting up there yeah, he's like 95 or something, yeah. You couldn't tell by looking at the guy. He he looked young and healthy and, you know, it's so very, very cool stuff. So you touched on some of these early recordings, or I'm sorry, uh, early interviews leading up to uh, the Boogeyman doc. Was that under your Reverend Entertainment brand or was that just now you've kind of met these people and they're like, hey, Justin, you've got a radio voice. Go do this interview. It, yeah, Reverend didn't exist at that point. Actually, it was all just me doing whatever needed to be done. And I don't, I, well, I guess it would have been the fact that I was writing for the magazine. And so I, and I was always a feature writer. I didn't ever do reviews or anything like that. So I, I was tracking people down, conducting the interviews. And if you do it long enough, it's, I think, assume there's a certain kind of professionalism that probably comes with that in order to continue. It was the Shout Factory thing came when I was at, oh, I was at, it was at the Horror Hound weekend where they had Jamie Lee Curtis at it because I was there representing Trankus and the whole Halloween universe, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, ja- it was huge because Jamie Lee's one appearance that she's made so far at one of these things. And I was in the lobby at one point and Jeff and Cliff from Shout Factory happened to be there. They went there. They walked up to me and introduced themselves and said, hey, we have a list. Are you interested in doing some of this special feature stuff, more of these types of interviews and things? here's our list of what we're working on. What do you think? Saw that they literally had a piece of paper in their hand, like here, look. And I see Tank Girl at the top. I'm like, holy shit. And at the time I was in the beginning of a book on Tank Girl with Rachel, the director, which she got too busy. I got too busy. So that hasn't yet happened. But I was just like, well, for sure that. 
and yeah, let's do this. That's how it began. It was a happenstance meeting at uh, at Horror Hound Weekend that led to everything with those guys. Then it was just kind of off to the races from there. And actually, so from that, it kind of leads me into my to my next question. From that, I mean, Reverend Entertainment has kind of, I guess, flourished is what I want to say. And I mean, you do content for Paramount, for Shout Screen Factory, for Vinegar Syndrome, I mean, a host of others. Uh, but we also noticed that you recently have been working with Terror Vision. That just started recently, right? It did, yeah. And that the second part of your question was about Reverend. Reverend was born on impulse when I was putting the Sleepaway Camp documentary together for Shout Factory. I was sitting with my editor, Justin, at the time, another Justin, and we were needing to come up with how to put the credit at the beginning of it, because that was that may have been the first full-fledged documentary that I had done. Re- There's this whole story behind the Reverend thing that goes way back. It's very stupid. But anyway, in, in the moment, I'm like, Reverend Entertainment, and there it was born. So that was that. It ties into this dumb thing relating to wrestling from when I was younger. We have to hear it. You have to. It's nothing about wrestling dumb. Oh, man. There was a time when I was the assistant editor of the Illinois Valley Press, and I worked out of the town of Farmer City, Illinois. That was where my office was. And I, I still, one of my best friends and the guy who's my sort of electronic savior, Lynn Amaker, lives there. He runs my website and I don't have anyone that works with me. The closest thing I have is Lynn in Farmer City. And we're connected all day through Teams or whatever it is where we message and he helps graphic stuff. And there was this wrestling group that was going to be having an event in the area, pro wrestling kind of a thing, but it was local. I was going to cover it. So I, I went to this meeting to meet the people and sort of get a pre-interviews. And then, of course, I was going to go the night of and take pictures and just to feature it. It's kind of cool. At that time, wrestling was at its apex. I mean, it really was the Attitude Era kind of stuff that was going on when the two companies were butting heads, WCW and WWF. The and Monday Night Wars. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And it was never, I mean, it was huge. It was huge for a generation of people. And so anyway, th- that gave birth, and I think ECW more so probably, to this group that was local there. Fast forwarding the story that I go to this meeting and I walk in and they're like, oh, the newspaper guy. And I'm, they're like, you're, you're pretty tall. Do you want to wrestle? And I was like, I don't know the first thing about, about it. I used to go out when I was a kid. I never missed it when it came to town. My dad worked at the newspaper, so we got free tickets to every WWF show that came to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I was there when Andre the Giant got arrested for punching a photographer, choking a photographer. I was there. I saw Hogan. I saw Ultimate Warrior. I loved it as a kid, but I had definitely separated from it in life until this point. And so then they said, I met with them and they're all, yeah, yeah, let's do this thing. You don't have to do much. We'll like, whoever you're in there with, will do the work for you. You just be tall. That <laughs> was the thing. So I, so I came up with this really atrocious overdeveloped character called the dead reverend. I have, I still have somewhere the again, bloated backstory of the history of this guy who I can't believe I'm telling this, that (laughs) the idea was that he, he was, he was in Salem area when the, this whole witch hunt thing was happening. You you know, the witch and the Reverend special features, you see that witch Mm -hmm. that ties into this story. Like no one knows that until now. That's why there's a witch there. So these women are being accused falsely of this shit. I mean, it was horrific what happened at that time. And I've always been just look back at that. And I mean, it's, it's always been so 
troublesome to me. And I wanted to have some semblance of vengeance. And so for my little pea brain, I thought, well, the dead reverend's the chance. And so what he was, was he was a guy who was sheltering these women, trying to prevent their deaths, trying to save them. And they all end up being killed. He gets hung for them, but there's one witch left. You hear this story? Like how developed? What wrestling character has even this much backstory? And then she ends up committing suicide on his grave. Her blood flows into the ground and he's resurrected. And now he's going to go and he's going to raise hell with every priest and quote unquote holy person who sent these poor women to their deaths. And it was going to be, it it was actually, there was a comic book series that this guy was working on with me. So I have a piece of concept art from this artist named Tony Kelly. We were going to do this whole thing. Well, anyway, I, I did a couple matches and I was horrible, horrible. I did put a guy through a table. That was fun. I had makeup (laughs) that I did, like zombie makeup for it. And I found these PVC kind of pants that I wore. It was so fucking terrible. But anyway, that's where Reverend came from. So now when you see the witch, I have two pieces from Justin O'Neill on my wall, who's one of my favorite artists in the world. He's the one who designed the witch for the animated logo that I have. So that's her in front of a wall with the broom that you guys have seen, if you've seen my little video bit. And then he made a second one of her where she's walking away with a torn noose around her neck. And the background is a gallows and a church and a tree all in flames. And she's walking away from it with her fists clenched. Like she got away with it. You know, she made it away and made them pay. That's the story of Reverend and the Witch. And it began with Sleepaway Camp when I needed a name for something of a company. And it didn't exist at that point. It wasn't until many years later that I formalized Reverend and it became what it became. And that, sir, is the longest answer for the simplest question that I'll probably (laughs) offer you today. I love it. I'm glad that we wrestled that story from you because it's an, it's an amazing backstory, but as you're telling it, I agree with what you say bloated because I'm thinking, how is that amazing backstory going to be told in the ring? It wasn't, you know, trying to think of it, you know, there's no way it's so huge. <laughs> Cause I think it became for me a character and I knew what it was going to be. The comic book thing came pretty quickly after this was started to happen. And I don't remember how I got in touch with this Tony Kelly artist guy. He showed a lot of interest in the concept. So then it became more about the comic comic book for me. And I think back in the day on their website, maybe the wrestling group had a flyer at the show that had the stories of all the different characters listed out. And of course, it's like, Tony Kickass is from Tough Street, USA. And then it's like, Pete McPuncha is from Iowa and doesn't take any dirty talk or whatever. Then mine's like, the dude Reverend was born in seven, like this whole long, (laughs) so embarrassing, but it was really fun. It was really fun and ultimately gave birth to the company name, which I'm grateful no one has had problems with about religion or anything because it has nothing to do with religion outside of the story I just told you. So. The other thing that makes me happy about getting that backstory is as much as I know about you, I've been trying to, without just saying, tell me exactly where you got your start. I'm curious. I've been curious, like how you got started. I think fans of our genre or even um, participants of our genre, whether it be podcasters or convention um, hosts, I think everybody tries to figure out how does this person get to this point? Where do they start? And it sounds like you started, not, not to paint you in a box, but it sounds like you started as a writer. That's kind of where this journey initially began for you. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. When I was little, I loved having my dad read to me, my 
grandpa would read to us. My grandmother was reading to us on Christmas Eve and books were just such a huge part of my life. I spent so much time at the little library in my town. They had the most amazing children's room there and they had all those books on record, accompanying book and the record. I love that. I love, and then the Crestwood monster books that I've pointed to a million times over the years were so instrumental where I was learning about not just movie monsters, but also cryptozoology. So I fell in love with books at an early age. And then when I, and the great thing about being so like just loving going to the library was as I'd watch a movie, I'd rent a tape or something and I wanted to go learn about it. And so I would go to the library and hope that it was in some book of like 50 monster classics or something. And I might get one chapter on, oh, this is whatever I just saw. Then I learned about Fangoria from my buddy, Matt, whose parents were way cool and let him subscribe. And he would sneak him into school and pass him off to me like contraband to be able to peek through. And then I became interested in the mechanics of it and how they were writing about them in that magazine. It was very different than Famous Monsters, which I had experienced, which was a very loose style for the articles in there. Many of which Joe Dante told me were written by kids. He's like, my friends and I would try to write our letters to Forey with enough information that it might become a story. And it did often that children would write in after doing their own research and for you'd be like print put it to press and so kids buy the magazine and they're just looking for their own articles and it's just so amazing to me anyway so yeah it all began with writing and writing for those newspapers writing for those some magazines over time and when i was a kid i had stories and poetry books and things that i was trying to shill to the kids at school Uh, my bands would have shows and i'd have a little chat book of poetry that i'd hand out. And it's just like writing has always been my thing. And it still is. And I wish I could do it, had time to do it more. I still write for regularly. Every month I have a column in TV Guides Remind magazine. It's about defunct amusement parks and roadside attractions of a bygone era. That's what it's about. But uh, the days of writing for all the magazines, it's just so tough with how they pay and how much, because I'm going to put a lot of time into it. And with how much else I have going on, it's really tough to carve out that time right now. But it's, it's my one absolute 100% passion love in the arts is writing. It's the thing that I can sit down and do anytime and feel incredibly warm and comfortable. I don't, do you guys have that space? Do you have something? I would love to hear, actually, I'm fascinated by people's place that's like this because I, I can't point to anything else in my life that if I were to sit down and just decide to do it, that I, I just am filled with such a such peace and happiness in doing it. Of course, being a dad is that, but there's a lot of challenges with that too. With writing, there aren't the peaks and valleys. It's just peaks for me. Do you guys, not to pull us off topic here, but I would love to hear it. Do you guys have that thing? I think we talked about this earlier and maybe we didn't. Finley came in earlier before we started recording if we're pulling the curtain back, who's my four-year-old. And I've always just had that. I'm growing it with her, but I had it with my son, Jack, where we would invite his friend over and we'd just watch Joe Bob. We'd just lay around in the front room and we'd watch the last drive-in. It would just be me and Jack, my son, and his friend Xavier. We'd have food. We'd have soda and whatever. And we just, you know, usually one of us would end up passing out before we make it through the night. But that was just that bonding experience. And it was just, like you said, there's challenges with children. But for those five, six hours on a Friday night, it was I wasn't dad. I was just one of the guys just hanging out. 
yeah. watching movies that together and Finley and I watched um, The Legend from Boggy Creek 2 last night and it was way past bedtime. Mom had went out with friends. She had napped on the way home from a wedding we went to so she wasn't ready for bed. So I found Legend from Boggy Creek 2 and I put it on and she just sat on my lap. We just watched this movie. She'd jump every once in a while, but you know, just that bonding experience of sharing movies and entertainment. And she, again, everyone in my house is a reader. The dead reverend ringtone. Right. It's the haunted <laughs> it's the haunted mansion. And it's so funny. When I'm in stores or something and that goes off, you can see who is either a Disney nut or a horror nut when they go, What haunted mansion? Like what? Anyway, that was my mom calling. Sorry about that, Brian. That was the next match they got booked for you. <laughs> mom. The preacher's coming to town. Ding, ding. <laughs> oh my god everybody in my house loves to read i'm not a reader but we do we go to the library every other week go to the all the events at the library and i think the movie thing though just pulling her slowly into the movies that i love and growing her passion for movies and she's not only horror i mean she'll go from transformers to spider-man to scary movies to disney princesses and you know she just has probably more knowledge of movies than i have that's cool man you know she just has this big array of stuff that she loves and then i'm sitting there watching the greasy strangler you know like for the 15th time like (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's kind of my comfort just chill and drift off i think we all made it through the movie last night jason what what's yours besides the halloween universe I was about to say, I feel kind of lame here. I know everything for me is peaks and valleys. I was talking to my wife about it last night, kind of how I get that rush from getting something cool, new horror related or seeing a movie. And then there's that downtime in between the next big thing coming out. I don't know though. I don't have anything that's that constant high for me. I'm not a big reader, get back into it, but then I'm just trying to think about when I have the time for that. I probably have the time. I just make excuses not to do something. So no, I don't have the ideal story to end this segment. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, everybody stop staring at me. Someone else talk about something else, please. I mean, I can't sugarcoat it. You know, life is ups and downs for me. I do have a lot more ups. I think one of the things that Clint and I both live on a high is vending at events. I mean, Clint's in his comfort zone at events, and I kind of feel like I am too. You just get people that come up to your table. And I did an event last weekend on Sunday, and it was more of a antique show, but I was there talking for an hour to a guy that I've I've met through Facebook. He lives in town. He's a big um, Italian movie fan, but I'd never met him in person. And several people came up to the table and they're like, well, I saw you talking to that guy. So I didn't want to interrupt. Tiffany was kind of running the table. And I think Clint's comfort zone is that too. You just get in that mindset and just you meet somebody that has that same passion as you. So cool. Mine is, I, I tell people that I'm collecting people at the risk of going on. And I'll try to keep it short and, and I'm not trying to, I feel like I'm trying to emulate you, Justin, or copycat you, but I come from a newspaper background also. My grandfather worked at the newspaper. He was an editor. My entire family worked there to some degree. I worked there after high school in the mailroom. So I kind of come from this writing background. And um, so although I have, I don't have anything published, I don't have any of my screenplays, you know, that have made it past showing a few people and a couple production companies, but I feel that that's what I'm good at. So whether it's a blurb for the podcast or an advertisement or just a, a communication reaching out to television to see if they want to sponsor the show here, I feel that writing is my strong point. And I'm very comfortable in that. Not 
cocky, but uh, I feel very competent in it. And then the other part of that is kind of what Brian was just talking about is I'm an idea guy and I love cross promoting. And so like we were at Motor City Legacy, the boys came up to Detroit and I don't drink anymore, but I had a beer and then I'm like, oh, I shot off this idea. Hey, we should have Jim Crut, the helicopter zombie from Dawn of the Dead on the show. And there's a local guy in Detroit called Dead Fred. And he was there with us and and, and Dead, uh, Dead Fred emulates that. We should have them both in the show. And we'll discuss this. And then I realized what I said, which it's a great idea. But then I saw Dead Fred's looking at me like, yeah, let's do this. And I went, oh, shit, this stuck. You know, uh-huh. so I have a habit of just uh, lightning bolts hit and I'm very comfortable there. And just uh, possibilities, possibilities interest me. So. Yeah, that, the writing thing is something that I, to your question about TerraVision, that's one of the kajillion hats that I wear there is Brad Henderson will come up with the initial copy for the back of the sleeves. He'll send it to me and then I rewrite it, retool it. And so together we come up with all the copy on the back of each disc, which is really exciting. That's one of the things I do for them, one of the many, that I haven't had the chance to do for any of these other labels. Because outside of TerraVision, it's it's pretty much just doing special feature production for everybody, not just to minimize in any way, but just saying, that's my role. With Paramount, they're not really asking me to write copy for anything. And with Shout Factory, it's very much a special feature only kind of a thing. So yeah, it's really thrilling. TerraVision has been an incredible experience already. I think we're only about three months into my relationship with them at this point, I want to say. And for those, I have you talked about the background of the label on this at all? Or are you doing that in your segment that was earlier? No, I, I'm going to talk about the news that they're got 350 movies in their pocket and they're putting out 50 in the next year or so and just making this huge leap. I mean, this is a big deal for them. I mean, so TerraVision is, is a a wonderful, I guess, uh, team effort is how is the best way that I could put it. And it grew out of being a sub label over at Vinegar Syndrome. Ryan at TerraVision has had a record label for years. That's done very well. Graveface Records. He also has museums that he runs. He has record stores, like physical record stores and things. So so passionate about music and the genre. And then he decided to take a leap and try to get this thing going over and quickly, not putting words in his mouth, found, man, there's so much more that I'd like to be doing. And so went solo pulled away from the vinegar syndrome relationship. And here they are. He brought Brad Henderson in. The two of them started very quickly building this thing that is so aggressive and so inventive with how they're approaching stuff. And we started talking at the beginning of the year about the possibility of teaming up and me getting on board with something there. We didn't really know what shape it would take or what it would be. And it's uh, grown well. And then I, then we had an official signing on of me to them. And it really is every day I'm doing television stuff there. And we have a lot of stuff always flowing through. It's not like with shout where I'd be on two or five titles at a time or paramount where it's just two at a time or three. This is, just a never ending stream of everything. And I'm with them doing everything from content creation. I mean, I'm, we're still working on early licenses right now, things that were licensed long before I came on board, some of which has already had all the special features done, some of which the features were sent in by the filmmakers. On the traditional experience, like a reverend entertainment experience of creating special features, I haven't had to do a lot of that yet there. But what I am doing is everything from creating trailers, I'm a 
assembling alternate cuts of films. I am cutting the special features that have come in from others. Any kind of promotional, anything you see from graphics to videos, teasers. Uh, there's a podcast that they just started. And so tackling that and editing and doing all of that. And then, as I said, it's a team effort, meaning that we're talking every day about what's happening and how things can move around, what could fit well with this. And here's what we got. What do you think of this? They'll say, or it's, and it's stuff I'm not hearing from any, I don't get that from any other relationships that I have. And so it's kind of neat. It's like, it reminds me of back. There was a time when I was with at the same time, Fangoria, Famous Monsters, Scream, and Horror Hound. And Horror Hound was kind of like a side thing. But each one of them is so different, right? Fango is completely different than Horror Hound. Horror Hound's completely different than Famous Monsters. And I felt like I get to write in all these different realms, in these different styles. And that's how it feels with these different labels. Terrorvision, very different than Shout, different than Carlotta Films in France, different than Umbrella, different than... And it's just so exciting to have the diversity of all of those. Well, the good news is, is although... I mean, you don't exclusively work with TerraVision is you don't have to worry about TerraVision ever going out of business because Brian here <laughs> is doing everything he can to keep them going for a real yeah. long time. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I feel like through this part of the show, our stories are so intertwined and Clint was busting my balls, which you love to do. And Jason, you know, somewhat, but he's like, we're going to interview Justin, you know, like, do you want to come up with the questions? And I was like, no, I'll just talk to him about being friends. And he's like, oh, so I'm going to do all the work. And I was like, no, but I feel like, I feel like naturally our conversation would just flow because a lot of what you have said, like meeting Mike and Jason, I was just a guy that listened to their podcast mm -hmm. and became friends with them. And I became friends with you. And, you know, we've done the drive-in. And I think we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And TerraVision. I mean, I have this love for TerraVision because as I look back, my first podcast appearance as a guest was on the WNUF special. That was a movie we covered. And then I tumble, I stumble on TerraVision in Chicago at Flashback and I grab a copy of Dead Kids on vinyl, which I never knew. I never even knew this movie existed. Oh, I love that movie. I think I had watched it, but I, you know, and that's a movie that is set in my hometown. And it leads to me writing an email to Darcy and Joe Bob about the night we spent at the drive-in seeing Boggy Creek. And God, I can't even remember the other movie because I love Boggy Creek so much. And I just have this passion for the night at the drive-in. And, you know, my letters talked about on the last drive-in, you know, and then we get to meet Joe Bob in Burlington. We hang out and we go to dinner afterwards and you spend a half hour busting my balls after the show. <laughs> And, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been amazing. It really has. And your, your passion is, is so infectious. And it's, it's like you, you walk into the room and you're kind of like the nurse that knows what to do for everybody. You don't specialize in the care of your friends. You have a general practice in the care of your friends. And that's really always blown me away since I met you, because it seems like everyone who's around you, you are nurturing. And there aren't that many people in this world who I can say that about that I've met. But even when it comes to the drive-in, and if you want to get there, we'll get there. But the you're volunteering to be a part of that. It's not that you're just a passive person. It's I mean, all everybody, you guys wouldn't have this show if you weren't beyond passive investment in entertainment. And that's it's not that movies are meant to engage people in taking action and doing something. Movies are meant to entertain us. But when you're driven to do something more than that, I think that's something special. And that's like what you guys do with this show. Think of everything you just listed and how quickly and in how deep your relationship with the genre got, but most importantly, the people that you were meeting. And that's how I feel too, that over the years and my travels and all this stuff, it's, it's not about a network 
It's not about, that's why I still live in Iowa. It's one of the reasons. I just don't really care about a lot of that stuff because what what matters to me are the people and the relationships. And I keep up with a lot of people all the time that I've met over the years. And I have so many dear friends from this whole crazy adventure that I'm very grateful for. But there's no one in town that I'm going to hang out with and have coffee. All my friends are everywhere else. My friends are really, it's like everyone's scattered to the winds. If Mike and Jason were closer, I'd be hanging out with them all the time. But even Atum was quite a ways away from me. But I don't feel alone that much just because I'm so attached to so many people in so many places as a result of this. And it's real relationships. It's really like, I know the families. I know the kid. I'm getting pictures. Sean Davis this morning from Land of the Creeps. I get pictures of his kid Fitz almost every day because I just, I'm obsessed with his baby and I'm watching this little guy grow and we're talking about parenting. And that's what this is about. A hundred percent. Yeah, man. Yeah. Your, your journey with this has been incredible to experience and you're a great friend. Same. That, that's it. It's just same. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else that needs to be said. I'm trying not to cry on the podcast, Jason. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Justin, though, because I, I like to talk shit about Brian a lot. And I'm like, this guy is just a fucking nerd who's like all into this stuff. And then you call it passion. And I'm like, <laughs> it makes me feel like a horrible person. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> it really is a passion for him. And I'm sitting here like downplaying it I'm like this fucking guy. All right. Sorry, <laughs> Brian. I love you more now. So. That makes it work better. It's like when you call a tall guy shorty, you know, it makes sense. <laughs> hey, I feel like a heel too, Jason, because I'm not sure that that uh, heartfelt you know moment there doesn't leave much segue into moving on. So I'll, I'll have to be the dick that goes, that's all very good and well. So let's talk about the driving, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I hear that so often, especially in like Q&As or commentaries where people, you know, it's clear they're working through a list and they'll just jump topics after some deeply emotional moment. I'm always like, no, <laughs> roll with that. Get in that water. Ride with this person. No, it's good. The drive-in. Yes, yes, the drive-in. Actually, you're right. I'm going to back up because... <laughs> I'm, I'm jumping around in this whole interview because I tell you what, Justin, when I met you last year, there was a couple things that you said that, that I keep with me, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but one of those was, uh, well, I'll get to it right now. One of them was I asked you when you approach interviewing, I was like, how do you go about it? Do you do you kind of interject yourself and to keep things moving? And, and I loved your answer. You said, I'm essentially a fan. You know, I do what I have to for the mechanics of it, but I like to just sit there and, and listen. No one is listening to the interview of us interviewing you, Justin, to hear about us. So when you ask us questions, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not going to say much because we're here to learn about Justin Beam. Can I, let me just say though, that's a little bit different in this format. That's different. I think that the purpose and the wonder of podcasting is that people engage with it because they fall in love with the hosts. They, they are engaged in you. You guys are the destination for this. This is very different. What I was, my, my short answer to your question, if I could rewind time back to when, if, if you asked that and I answered it that way, I would just say, I just listen. I would just leave it at that because my pet peeve is when interviewers on in print, especially even in an on-camera interview when they interject themselves unless it's a known I guess that's I don't know it's hard to say if it's Joe Bob that's a little bit different Joe Bob is a personality he's the destination so like with this show people who subscribe they're subscribing to you regardless of who the guest is that's what makes podcasting different in an article you can show up for the for the writer which covers in the beginning and the end you know like the structure how their research was it's all going to come out in the wash, how good a researcher, how good a 
connection they've made with whoever they're talking to. I'm not particularly fond of is someone who will jump on top of the people who are who they're interviewing or who turns it into a, well that reminds me of when I was eight and I always interpreted this scene as meaning this because almost all the time when you hear that happening the director or whoever it is will just be like oh yeah I mean that's kind of just means something different to everybody kind of a thing but yeah my short answer to that totally would be just listen would be the greatest advice I could give to anyone who's interested in getting in board be over prepared have as much research in hand as you can and then just follow the natural flow of the conversation like we were joking about it a moment ago well that was really interesting but tell us about your shoe size if it gets there cool you want to have that shoe size noted somewhere in your notes but let the conversation lead there naturally i think is really the magic in that because nothing feels better than when you sit down with really a stranger and you end up you call me a hugger at the beginning come here you know like you're saying goodbye or someone i mean when they get something out of it when they find something in it and i've had a number of experiences like that that i will never forget that were deeply moving where i've connected with someone who sometimes may have even started a little like keep your distance if the planets align and you guys end up developing that quick trust and they let down their facade not that everyone has one i'm not saying that in a derogatory way but we all to some extent are feeling things out until we know we can be okay not and that's in everything that's in relationships discussions that's in work everything where you know okay now i can just i think i've got this or i feel comfortable here and that's my goal with everybody that i'm interviewing is to try to have that engagement in an organic way and not shoehorn in my talking points or something and certainly not talk about myself because but i'm also think about this too and this is not to talk down about how other people do what they do but for me i'm, I'm also not a part of the things that i'm assembling so if i'm interviewing you guys right now this is for a blu-ray that we're doing i'm not going to be heard it's just going to be your responses that i'm intercutting with clips behind the scenes or whatever else it might be so i'm not i'm an invisible party anyway which is how i feel like for what i do it should be it should really needs to be about that person and if they've given you their time if they've opened up especially if they're going into some personal territory and stuff boy man you you really i feel for me just speaking for myself i then owe it to them to safely explore that with them however they want to go with it and not pull them out of that water and throw them on the dock and then let them sit there dripping wet like but i was almost ready to share something or whatever sorry to run off with that question but um, that's interesting that that one resonated with you, man. That's really interesting. The other thing that stuck with me was, and I was going to bring it up a little later, was uh, we always rib Jason about being a mainstream fan. And it's just fun amongst ourselves. But I remember when we were talking about that, Justin, you had come forth and said, you know, it's don't put a movie in a box. A good movie is a good movie. That was the other thing that really stuck with me because I agree with you. Even though it's fun to rib rib Jason for like in Halloween or it's fun to rib, you know, Brian for like in Godzilla or they don't rib me because I'm cool. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> the reason I was going to bring that up later, and I mean, we'll just get to it right now, was uh, I'm curious. I mean, so you do you find yourself living in like one specific or subgenre more than others? Because you seem to kind of gravitate towards like the, the fringe category that like Brian and I live in of like weird movies like Boggy Creek or Linnea Quigley's Horror Workout, as opposed to Evil Dead Rise or Halloween 7 or, you know, wow. is, is there something you specific specifically go to? That's interesting to think of. I to the point on the mainstream thing and Jason, the everyone puts their toe in the water at some point. And we're usually going to be led somewhere by what's easily available. 
because when you're six and you want to turn on the TV, you're not going to first go to the weirdest video store in town, head to the Russ Meyer section and rent Super Vixen. That's not going to occur to you. That's actually what Brian did, but most people know. He had had a lot of people around him who happened to be into all this other stuff. And then they're all like, hey, Brian, no, really, though. Yeah, that's cool. But check this out. So I get that. We are all just, and that's one thing I think that it's easy to lose track of a little bit when you're so deeply embedded in a certain fandom is that we just love fun. We love being entertained. We love being challenged. We love being wowed. It even feels good to cry in a movie. Like we go to stir emotion. We go to be repulsed, to laugh at something. There's an infinite reason, a list of reasons why we watch what we watch, listen to what we listen to, et cetera, et cetera, and go where we go. And I don't think any of us, very few people are just into one thing. And there's an openness, like Brian, you were talking about this a little bit ago. The reason you, your kids are into what they're into is because you haven't just said, nope, we only watch slasher movies here, or we only watch Godzilla films here or something. We are also diverse. And um, so to your question about what the what I live in, I think most of my collection, it, it's a real hybrid. When I look at my collection, of course, it's diverse. It, it's it's through nothing intentional that I don't enjoy. I, I don't own like Transformers movies or as, as much as I love Transformers, especially the old cartoon and I have some toys. I'm just not really drawn to a lot of the, a, a lot of superhero movies and stuff. I wanted Nicolas Cage as Superman, 100%. I really wanted that. It definitely is on the fringe. I think that's a great term for it. That's what I've always been drawn to. And this goes back, there's a book from, my dad had it in the pocket of his recliner when I was a kid. And it was the movie guide. I can't remember whose names were on. I have one of them here, but it's like a Bible. It was a small little slab of a book, essentially printed on like Bible paper, very thin. And it's just quick synopsis of these movies, but they had a rating system, five stars for the best, turkey for the, like, avoid this movie at all costs. And when I was little, I'd be sitting there bored and flipping through. And I very quickly learned that the turkey was what I was looking for. So the turkey movies became my goal almost universally and one star at the most, because I learned this is where the excitement is. And, and there's something, this is where Terror Vision, you look at Vinegar Syndrome in these companies who have been spotlighting a lot of stuff like shot on video, regional horror movies that might not have had much outside of four wall engagements or drive-in booking and stuff. There's a real raw energy involved with a film that's being made on a smaller scale that it really in, excites me. I love that. I, I, it's it's thrilling to watch people who have minimal budget pull something off and, and make it with heart. And then because they, and there's a lot of reasons why that whole thing works so well for me, but it just, I am really drawn to lower budget things, regional movies, I like monster stuff. I like different creatures when people are pulling creatures out, side road movies for directors who don't normally go into a certain area or genre. So it's certainly not all horror. It's not all, I mean, it's not all anything. It's it's a real diverse array. But then I will say the Batman movies, I, I love the Tim Burton's two Batman movies to death. Those are my two favorite superhero movies of all time, his first two films. Uh, so I have those. I do have all, the, I have that Godzilla set from Criterion. I've just been loving all these boutique releases from companies. There, Even stuff that was kind of bigger budget, like Matinee, when Shop Factory did that Blu-ray of Matinee as part of the Paramount Presents series. I was so happy. I wasn't part of it, but I love that movie to death, and that's one that's kind of off the beaten path a little bit. But then I also own every Elvis movie, because I'm such an Elvis nut. 
But if you were to look at this, I think a lot of people would come in here and sort of scratch their heads looking at my wall of movies. They'd be like, fuck is this stuff? I think what's what's fun about The Fringe is, again, not to knock Marvel, but you brought Marvel up. I'm not a big superhero guy either. But when you watch the, the 12th installment of whatever Mar- Marvel franchise, it's the same voice, the same thing. It kind of feels like it's got the same purpose. But when you get in The Fringe, you get all these different voices, all these different ideas being presented that you might not normally hear. So so again, when, when I, when I rib Jason about being a mainstream fan there's nothing wrong with that because i love the same stuff but to yeah the, the fringe is cool because you get that stuff you just don't hear all the time those ideas yeah and we also that that's what we wander into earlier we were discussing where in the beginning when you're young you find what's available and what's available is going to be the more commercial stuff i was obsessed with tim burton's first batman when it first came out i had the shirt i had the bat dance single that I drove my parents nuts with on our one trip to Disney when we went to Florida. Our car had a tape deck in it, which blew my mind. And so I had this cassette single that I played and flipped over and over. And my parents wanted to murder me. And I'm sure they've never listened to Prince again since, not that they did prior. Leads to other things. And that's where I get into the importance of something like a Fangoria, like a trip to the library, these books. And now there's more than ever. There's been a proliferation of indie publishers, just like with the movie releasing stuff. If you want to read up on something and go as deep as you want to go, it's out there. And you can do that now. But the point is, when you fall in love with uh, Tim Burton, you read interviews with Tim Burton, and then you see who he loved. That was my journey. And it was the same way with music. You fall in love with uh, Buddy Holly, and then you start reading about reading interviews where he cites his influence. And and that leads you on this never ending journey of exploration. That's the joy for me in all of this. And that's oftentimes leads to these fringe kind of movies that also I think is tied to the video store experience when I was a kid and I had no filters at all outside of just looking at art on the cover and deciding does that looks cool let's rent that that's how I discovered everything sleepaway camp was has become such a huge part of my life obviously over the years but that was began it far more was a store we had here p h a r m o r and they had an amazing video rental room but on the shelf is the box and i remember seeing that back the letter written on the back and that shoe with the blood i was like this is the most intriguing thing i but i couldn't bring myself to rent it for the longest time and once i did my brother and i wore that thing out and we can still quote lines from it and even prior to working on it and stuff. The journey of exploration in the indie world will lead you around into areas, let yourself go, go for the ride, dive in, explore it. There's more ways now than ever to safely and pretty inexpensively, you know, troll the waters and you've never been in before. Now, that's one of the reasons I just recently backed uh, the visionary documentary. I've been pushing it and it's uh, <clears throat> going to be a documentary about George Atkinson who started the video station. Basically the whole reason that we're here talking, you know, is because of the video store and because of USA Up All Night, in my opinion, you know, and that's, uh, that was our, our, our education. So, and Joe Bob was part of that too. Uh, yes, Mon- absolutely. Monster Vision and Joe Bob at the drive in, instrumental guys. And that look back at that. People who know Joe Bob now from Shudder, you're seeing just a sliver of what he was because, and a lot of that, everything had to do with what these different networks had available to them in terms of their catalogs, of course, but it was not horror. He hosted everything. A lot of it was just exploitation movies. Some were thrillers, some were comedies. It was the real diverse spectrum. And I think that was really important as an introduction when I was younger and same for you guys we're talking about that if we just stuck to one genre, geez, we talk about being boxed in, we really would have been. Thank goodness we have these people walking us into a diverse array of, of genres and things to, to fall in love with. 
I think Jason had people walking him through and guiding him. I had people that were showing me faces of death and Tim Ritter's shot on video classic, uh, truth or dare or critical consequence. So now I'm open for anything. Like those are movies I remember from my childhood. Maybe I was 12 and I'm like, I look back now and I'm like, I should not have been watching this, but now I can message Brian Clark and say, what should I watch today? And no matter what he tells me, I'm not going to be like, oh my Lord, I need to go pray or something. You know, like Jason had more caring hands in his childhood. (laughs) Yeah. And and speaking of diversity, Brian Clark's going to be on the show here in the near future. Make sure you tune into that one to, to hear what movie we're going to be watching. It's a doozy. (laughs) Uh, So, so, and then every once in a while lightning strikes and you get that more mainstream and like your Tim Burton and they meld because I'm, I'm sure you've seen that in the new flash movie coming out, Michael Keaton returns as Batman. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that's great. No one's talking about the Flash. Everyone's talking about exactly <laughs> and all the merch. Like I, I saw these like McFarlane figures, and they're all Batman stuff. Then they might see like a Flash logo on the base of the toy or something. <laughs> what is this? You guys, you guys forgot your lead, your, your lead guy. Anyway, that's very cool. It's very exciting. So, do you use this influence and your diverse love of different films in your selection choices for the drive-in that you host, the the Big Sky Drive-in, or is it more just kind of what's available to you? The first year was really impromptu. I wrote to them, them being the drive-in people, on just kind of a whim. It was kind of like that ad in the newspaper. I was like, oh, I wonder if they would be interested in doing something. So I wrote to them. I'm like, hey, could we team up on a horror theme night? We can make it real fun and double bill kind of a thing. I'll do all the kind of work and license saying you guys just kind of have to be there and host it it took a while but eventually she came back yeah you can do it and i remember distinctly that i was in idlewild up in the mountains in california when i got the call from her yeah let's do it and it'll have to be in like two weeks so because their season was ending and they didn't want to do it during their regular season but she said you can have the saturday after our season ends so basically one week after they closed the drive-in i was going to be able to do it so i had she's like just as long as we get everything by maybe monday from you then we can make it happen and i and i I now look back on that and i wonder how serious she really was because she probably thought throw him a bone that he could not possibly carry back to me like there's no way but luckily at that time i i had just started working with pamela pierce on this restoration of legend of boggy creek that we are now finally at the tail end of all these years later uh we have a 4k restoration that she and i have worked closely on a stabilized version of the film and a new mix we found a bunch of behind the scenes footage that no one's ever seen before and so anyway that's going to be amazing but pamela and i were early conversations and that project so i had her and at the time i had just done an interview with Michael Doherty, the director of Trick or Treat, about his office being in the Myers house in South Pasadena. He's a huge Halloween fan. And I was doing an article for TV Guide. Oh, no, it was for the Remind issue of TV Guide, TV Guide's Remind magazine. And they had asked me what a theme would be for the October when they wanted to try something different. So I turned it into an all Halloween franchise magazine. And for that, I interviewed Michael about his office being in Judith's room in the Myers house, which is legit true. If you stop by there today, look in the upper right-hand window, that's Michael Doherty's office where he's planning the next Godzilla or currently working on Trick or Treat 2, whatever. It's wild. And he has a mask that he'll wear and he'll like pop up sometimes in the window. He'll 
he'll even dress as Sam sometimes and take pictures of people out front and they have no idea it's him. It's wonderful. Because I was talking with Michael, so I guess to answer your question that first year, it was what's available, meaning, okay, I need some low hanging fruit here, but movies that I love and movies that will offer something diverse. And Trick or Treat never got a theatrical run. That was direct to video. I remember when Trick or Treat came out and no video store had it in stock forever. It just seemed like the waiting list everywhere was backed up. It's the last time that I remember chasing a movie at a video store before they all went away was Trick or Treat because everybody was obsessed with checking this amazing thing out. So I've always had a real soft spot and a super fondness for that movie and a love for Michael. So I'm in the mountains by myself in this cabin. Was supposed to, and, that, and I spend the weekend doing all this prep work. And I call Pam. She's like, oh, you can use it for sure. Absolutely. Thumbs up from her. And then I call Michael. And he's like, yeah. Uh, he said, here's who you can message. And he said, if they give you a hard time, just refer them to me. Okay. No hard time was had. I said, hey, Michael, blah, 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 blah. And then, yeah. So we were off to the races. And so that first year was Legend of Boggy Creek and Trick or Treat. And it was a nice double bill because Legend of Boggy Creek is a soft softer entry kind of a movie you know it's not real intense it's so the kids can be up yet and watch that and the idea was as always a double bill where the first one is a little more family friendly the second one might have more of the intense stuff in it for when the kids fall asleep or if people just want to head home after the more family friendly one and then ended up working out great there's a lot of william castle uh, love with me and so uh, naturally i bought this like ghillie suit and i was running around during boggy creek tapping on people's windows of their cars and scaring people and it was really so fun. It completely backfired because it ended up, uh, these little kids thought it was just hilarious and so funny. So I'm like the Pied Piper running around this drive-in lot in between cars and there's all these little kids following me around and they're all like, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. My mom's running the ticket booth. My my son's there helping. Uh, my friend Josh was there as a magician. It was amazing. It was just such an incredible experience. But it was very accidental. It all happened over the course of planning in two days. And then like a week later, it happened. And then the second year was kind of similar, um, where I, I tried to book it the same way again. Uh, and I did Monster Squad as the earlier film on that one, because that's more of a family-friendly kind of a thing. But um, And then Alligator was the second film. And that, again, I guess was... because I And I had just finished working on Alligator for Shout Factory. Shout had the license and that was an easy one to get from them. That's been the plan and it's been an amazing experience so far. Uh, I'm I might be looking for a new drive-in to host it at this year though, I think. I think I want to take it somewhere else and uh, see how it plays elsewhere. So, stay tuned. I was going to ask if you're going to do it again. And one of the reasons that I bring up Big Sky Monster Mash driving that you put on is with all of these things that you're involved with, from writing to, you know, interviewing to producing, I mean, all this cool stuff, you you took the time to have a little fun and do something more local in Iowa. And it just seemed on a more local, I guess the best word I can think of, level just to for the fans and for yourself to have fun at. So I thought that was cool. The thing that I really keep in mind with everything that I'm doing is what would I love as a fan of this. Even if I'm hired for a movie that I might not even be familiar with, I learn about it, I'm researching and I like what would fans want to see and hear. And it's the same thing locally here where I the drive there were drive-ins here years ago, but there when I was a kid there really wasn't one in the area, so I didn't have that experience. But I've always longed for it because you cannot get into the realm of fringe cinema and not be reading constantly about 42nd Street in New York in the 70s and the drive-in circuit. Those are staples of the education. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to give kids the or 
families, whoever, the experience that I never did. And I've been so obsessed with the drive and the idea of being in that booth and just saying, good evening, welcome to the boo 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 as the projectors right next to me. And I'm smelling the popcorn behind me, the years of whatever that have soaked into the walls in this place. That's been the one that I've done it at so far has been around since like the fifties, nonstop, always open. So imagine someplace, how many movies have run through that little window and being so close to that history in a cornfield in the middle of Iowa, which you think about what that would mean to families over the years who weren't going to travel to Chicago to see something that wouldn't play here. They weren't, there weren't a lot of, there weren't many revival theaters anywhere, let alone in the Midwest for so many years. And so just what that place meant to so many people. And I really wanted to do that for people to experience and also for myself as someone who just never had that chance to see Legend of Boggy Creek, which was made, to use a gang term, it was made on the on the uh, the drive-in circuit. That's what made that movie what it is. A lot of films that I love are that way. And so to sit and watch it there again in the restored print that we had at that time, the first phase of restoration was just unbelievable. I, I wouldn't have wanted to do that in a Chicago or LA. I, I, they see everything. They get everything. Here, you're not going to see Trick or Treat. So then people hear, wait, Trick or Treat played in a theater? Where? Iowa. Okay, man, maybe next time I'll go. Jason, what was your first drive-in movie go? Was Big Sky Monster Mash. I don't think I, well, <laughs> as far as I remember, yeah, I don't think I've been to any, maybe when I was a kid, but I honestly don't remember. So my first one was the one Justin hosted. I heard about it coming and I was super geeked out for it. Oh, so great to see you there, man. That was awesome. I've been to every single one. <laughs> All of them. All of them. All of them. <laughs> I was lucky enough, not as a child, but as a, a younger adult. 20 years ago, we had a drive-in in Galva, which is a little town about a half an hour away that we would go to. And it was before the digital exchange, so they'd closed since then. But we did family-friendly stuff. Um, and then we had a drive-in here in Galesburg that's not running right now. And they, they would show stuff um, that was before the digital exchange again. And I remember Jack and I going and seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre one of the offshoots of it that's got the guy from Platoon, the character actor, I can't remember his name for the life of me, the drill sergeant from Platoon. Arlie Ermey. Yeah, Arlie Ermey. I don't remember which text Chainsaw Massacre that was, but it's slightly raining. You can hardly see the screen. We go get the best tenderloin we've ever had in our lives and some popcorn and we just sit in the car and watch the movie. You know, and like you said, it's just, there's something different about it. I'm gifted because we have a theater here that's 106 years old that shows the Wolfman and the original Dracula. And oh my gosh. They showed, they showed on a Wednesday in the middle of the summer last, last year, they showed a creature from the Black Lagoon. That's cool. You know, I've been able to interview the staff of the theater on the stage and just the history of who's come across that stage in 106 years. I mean, mm. Galesburg used to be a hub for, you know, vaudeville and wrestling and the Globetrotters, you know, before Peoria and Davenport and Moline got big. I'm gifted that way. Not everybody is, like you said, not everybody is gifted to see those movies. And Clint said this maybe a million times on the show. We're living in this golden age of collecting and distribution and it's just something that we're lucky to have what about you Clint what was yours well you guys are way cooler than me my, my very first driving experience was a double bill and it was adventures and babysitting and the second movie was he-man with Dolph Lundgren that's a great double bill what are you talking about oh my gosh 
when I look back at it now, I'm like, it's such a, it was such a weird mesh, you know what I mean? But it was fun. It yeah. was fun. And, and I'll never, I'll never forget it. Sadly, where that drive-in was, there's now uh, a factory, you know, where they make uh, like aerospace parts or something. We had two drive-ins where I live and they're, they're both long gone, but we do still have one. Uh, Brian and Jason, when you guys came up recently to, to visit and we talked about cold water, you know, and the Battle Creek area where the, the schoolhouse is for, um, Jeepers Creepers, there's a drive-in there. Uh, in fact, I think the last movie I saw there was The Meg a couple of years ago. That's cool, man. Justin, there's, there's a couple more questions I want to ask about your interviewing stuff to kind of hop back into that realm of your life, of your multifaceted life. You know, you talked about being a, a fan in the crowd when you do these things, essentially. Are, are there special moments? Do you have like, like what's your favorite project, for example? Do you have one that like sticks out or they, they're all just equally awesome in different ways? There are some that are not awesome. There are some that are kind of a chore, Where, but most of them, I mean, there's always some element of wonder. There's always uh, discovery and sort of wow moments in pretty much all of these. Uh, it's, you know, there's, there's an interesting thing that when you work, when I work, just speaking for myself, when I work on these things, it's like getting into a relationship and it's a really intense short-term relationship. I may be on a film, let's say for six months or four months or whatever it is from higher date. Here's the title. Do you want it? Yeah. Okay. To when I deliver. And I spend so much time with that movie over and over and over. I mean, you're watching it and rewatching it. You're searching for clips. You're pulling this. No, I'm going to replace it with that. The score, what's perfect for this. And by the time it's done, it almost feels like a breakup in a way. And I look at my shelf when I get my comp copies, most of them are unopened because it's like, man, I've spent so much time on this. And then I had to say goodbye to it to move on to something else that it's kind of like, I need time. I need time to want to revisit it again. I loved working on it, but I can't. To even, I'm, and I'm not talking about watching my own stuff, which I cannot do. But watch, but watching the movie itself, like right now, I wouldn't want to put Alligator on yet because it's just too close to two years ago or whenever that was when I worked on it. And uh, it was just such an omnipresent part of my life. So it's a little complicated because it's great to get hired for movies you love. But at the same time, I'm walking into it knowing it's going to end. And it's kind of like meeting someone that you know you're going, this relationship is going to be incredible. It's going to be one of those shooting stars, but I can see right now this is going to end. This is not going to be a long-term thing. And I hate, and I mourn that, but I'm still going to go for it because what's going to happen in between is so fucking worth it. And that's what each one of these things is. And so when I look back at almost everything that through the ups and downs, they all mean something special to me or some things. For me, it's really the moments that I was talking to about earlier where someone really opens up and connects going back to really early sleep sleepaway camp the interview have you guys seen the sleepaway camp documentary that's on that disc the blu-ray from shout i have not pick that up and check it out i, I think shout has kept it in print ever since then uh, which is kind of rare that documentary was really cool for a lot of reasons but to me the most precious thing was the interview with the lead felissa rose felissa has done a lot of producing she's She's been in a number of indie films since then. She's, she continues to do a lot, but her world is her family. Her world is her kids. She's out there on the festivals or on the uh, convention circuit, just about, it seems every weekend out there as really as an ambassador for that movie, but as, as, for the, for genre, for fans. And she gives, she tries to give everyone the same experience, this incredible thing. 
All that being said, Felissa was very young when she made this movie. At the end of that interview, we're having this conversation about it. Her mom was on set throughout this movie. She tells the story of having a premiere in New York where all of her friends and family came just to see Felissa and what that meant to her. And at the end, what I asked her, which is a question I ask pretty much everybody, is I say, what does sleepaway camp mean to you now? And we're sitting in her living room at her house. And she's like, and she pauses, and this is all on screen. She pauses and she looks at me and she starts crying. And she says, it gave me everything. It gave me my family. It gave me my life. It gave me everything. And she kind of keeps looking at me. The tears are rolling. She looks down. Then I fade out from like right there. And that's a moment where she came into an acknowledgement with herself, it sort of seemed like, about this is more than conventions. I'm not saying that it was that heavy, but you can it feels that way when you're watching it, that you know, this this is the thing for her. It happened with Eric Freeman on Silent Night, Deadly Night 2. Eric was missing forever. There was a whole movement called Finding Freeman of fans trying to track down Eric Freeman because they loved him in this movie and they wanted to talk to him and hear his two cents. And he had not done an interview on camera ever, I don't think, prior to sitting down with me. And we had had this incredibly intense week or couple of days. We did commentary on day one. We recorded a short film that he wrote right prior to the interview on day two, that it was like sort of an extension of Silent Night 2, where he wrote this little bit about his character escaping prison. So we shot that. So he stepped back into the role of Ricky, which was amazing. It was so crazy. That's a whole other story. But then in the interview, part of this is he had no idea that Garbage Day was a meme. The Garbage Day is one of the biggest memes of all time. It was an early meme before that word even probably existed. I don't know, but it was a big deal and it remains that. And that drew a lot of people to the film. And anyway, at the end of all of this, we're sitting in the interview and I say the same thing. What what does Silent Night, Deadly Night mean to you now? And this is a moment where you literally see it on screen where he goes, I wish, I wish it was in some other guy on screen, but I get it. I think I get it. And the fans have been, I just... Like he stumbles, he it's not a real poetic answer, but you're seeing him sort of settle on it. And then he kind of looks off camera and looks at the floor and he kind of nods and he goes, yeah. And you see that. And then a I say- Revelation. Yeah. And then I say, cut. And we shut off the camera. And as I was editing, actually Mike, Mike Saunders helped me on that one as edit. This is before I was editing stuff. And I would always sit with my editors when I could. And uh, we were sitting there cutting this and trying to figure out how to make it end. And I had forgotten that moment. I didn't even know that moment. In the moment, you miss a lot of it when you're in the room. And I'm, we're watching it back. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's leave all of that in. And so we did. And I even got messages from a couple people after it came out. Like, because you see the camera, you hear me say cut. You see the camera sort of unsettle a little bit. Then it cuts to black, which would normally be an error. You would not include that in the piece and a couple people reached out did you know you left this in there you left your i'm like yeah it's it's the moment i wanted it all there i wanted just the cameras looking at eric as you're seeing him acknowledge to himself like this isn't something to hide from this isn't something that i should be ashamed of this is something people love so those kinds of moments are the most precious to me and when you bring people back together for the first time on body bags i'm not sure how many people have bought that disc it seems like i don't know but it's this john carpenter and toby hooper made an anthology called body bags john did two segments great movie toby did one yeah yeah so my whole concept for the commentary on that was to put john with the lead or someone involved with each one of for his two segments and then initially it was going to be toby and i having a conversation over 
over the third one or Toby and someone. Toby backed out like two days prior. So we missed Toby. He was embroiled in this whole shit with his movie Gin overseas. There was all this legal shit with that. So I think he was overwhelmed by that, which was heartbreaking. But this ended up working out. So with John, I ended up having him with uh, Robert Carradine on the gas station segment, which is the one nerd out moment that I've really had because I'm I was such a huge Revenge of the Nerds to me. One and two when I was a kid. My brother and I can still go probably front to back on both those movies in terms of quotes. To see Robert Carradine walk in the room at the studio, I just melted. And I still, I get giddy when I think about it because I was so excited to meet him. He's He was so sweet too. But getting him with John again for the first time in, what, decades? And then Stacy Keach for hair. Meeting Stacy, one of my favorite actors of all time. So here's John and Robert having just an open, you know, a very John conversation over it. Like talking about the family, talking about whatever, occasionally what's on screen. But catching up with Stacy and Stacy's telling stories of playing Othello and his wig flying off in Central Park. It was just so incredible. And so for the last one, I got uh, Sandy King, who is John's wife. They produced body bags together. And it was so funny because as the other commentary things are happening, Sandy and I are out by the engineer and she's going, oh, that's kind of how it happened. You know, she's <laughs> she remembers it all very clearly. And so anyway, she and I decided to do just a discussion over hair, over uh, the eye, which was the last piece. I did reach out to Mark Hamill on that. And as people say, he had never seen the film and had no comment on it. So there was that. Really? Yeah. But um, and he's great in it. He's really good in that. But and it ended up working out great because here you have this nostalgic back and forth with these other two guys. And then Sandy and I kind of talked the nuts and bolts. And what's it like to what is John's creative universe like behind the camera and things that people don't normally get to discuss or hear about rather. And so that worked out nicely. But in that one, the real joy. And I have pictures of John and Robert, John and Stacy, because you don't see John Carpenter light up like a light bulb a whole lot. He's not famous for his, he goes to conventions and I don't know how he still does it. He was just at one a couple weekends ago. I'm like, that's exhausting for someone in their thirties, let alone him and all he had to go through. But anyway, he was just glowing the whole day. And then the the most precious probably of all was uh, with Roger Corman, back to Corman, the week that Dick Miller died and uh, on Piranha. It was supposed to, and I think I told the story when we did our live thing, but it was supposed to be, I got Dick Miller and Roger together for a commentary and they had never done anything like this before. They had never been interviewed together, never done commentary, but their careers are so intertwined. And then what Dick went on to mean for all these other filmmakers, like Joe Dante never stopped using him all the way to the end. And uh, and I was close with Dick and Lainey Miller. And uh, unfortunately, Dick had passed like the week prior to the recession and Rogers, Roger still wanted to proceed. And so uh, I picked Roger up. You talk about him still making appearances. He That morning when I picked him up from his office, he's hustling some movie in Guam. And he, I get in, I walk in his office. You'll have to forgive me. I, uh, I have a few faxes to send. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's no problem. He goes, it, it, it won't take long. And so I'm sitting out there just talking with his secretary, looking at the walls and Roger Corman, ah. His condition was that I drive. So, okay, cool. So we go down, we get in my car, and then we have like half an hour of traffic to get to the studio. And the whole way, we're just talking shop, whatever. And I said, why Guam? And he said, the only reason, really, it's the only place I haven't made a picture yet. Okay, 92-year-old Roger Corman still hustling through a fax (laughs) machine. Make that movie in Guam, man. Make it. And then he goes do you mind if we stop and grab a hamburger? And so, sure. So we drive through McDonald's and then he bought me fries, which was very sweet. And we get to the studio and 
Roger sitting there eating his burger as I'm working with the engineers to set stuff up. The week prior had been very emotional with me and with Lainey and Dick Miller as Dick was going through what he was at the hospital. And I was talking to Lainey while she was there. And she had sent me, I, I sent Dick this ridiculous bouquet of flowers when he was there. He wasn't a real showy guy, but I sent him these, these kind of over the top thing of flowers. And Lainey sent me a picture of him sitting with him in bed, like, ah, like I, you asshole kind of a thing. And when he passed away, it was, it was, it was very it was it was weird but um anyway i'm getting prepared roger's sitting there eating his burger and then laney appears this engineer comes and taps my shoulder and says oh, there's someone here for you justin i look and there's laney and their granddaughter and she walks over and kind of cocks her head you know she looks at me and then hugs tears and she's like dick would have wanted me here and she sat behind the engineer with her granddaughter just white knuckle holding hands the whole time and so what roger and i i had the engineer leave dick miller's seat table and mic in the room I'm, I'm like still set it up for three even though there's only going to be two of us set it up for him because i really wanted him to s still be there this was prior to any like knowing laney was going to show up this was always the plan after dick died and anyway um so Roger and I then just had a great conversation about his career, and we highlighted all these Dick Miller stories throughout it. And it really made it made it a celebration of Dick Miller as much as Roger Corman. We, of course, were watching Piranha. We touched on a lot of Piranha things throughout, too. But it was an opportunity to celebrate someone that, that we both loved, and that meant so much to Roger and Lainey being out there, being witness to it. Of all people, my friend Anthony, who did the Sharknado movies, he was there just to be a fly on the wall. So he took some pictures and videos. So there is a little bit of it captured, which is rare. I have almost no video or picture of anything I do, but it was really special. And again, it was the people coming together. It was Lainey and Roger in the same room. It was Lainey coming in and being there in Dick's stead. The tears that day, stopping for a hamburger. And then dropping Roger off and watching him sort of disappear into the elevator and the door shut, you know. I was going to ask what your oddest experience was, but it actually kind of sounds like that story right there is is definitely not your run-of-the-mill experience. It, it obviously touched you and, and stuck with you. It's fantastic. Yeah, that, that one was very special. It was. I mean, there... Um, sorry. There have been some odd experiences. When I was doing Willard, for example, uh, I was uh, the remake of Willard. I was talking with Crispin Glover about we were, he was going to be a part of it. And I had done this really exhaustive interview with him that ran over two issues of Fangoria some years prior. So we already had a rapport. But he got hung up over in Hungary. He was buying a castle and he was stuck there. And so we were like in constant contact. And he's like, oh, I'm pretty sure I'll be back on Tuesday we can probably record then. And I'm like, that'll be great. As I'm watching the calendar tick down, like on deadline. And, it, and but the craziest thing, and it, the, the Christmas didn't end up happening. He still was stuck there at deadline trying to buy this castle. I hope he did. I think he, sh I think he shot some stuff there since, but anyway, Bruce Glover, his dad was the crazy one, crazy experience on this one, because I, I wanted to make this doc, this piece on Crispin for that one, all about his career as a whole. So from the early shorts, the Orkley kid to, I mean, you know, everyone knows Back to the Future stories. There's a lot that I wanted to talk about and really just make it a spotlight on his whole creative person. And so, of course, crucial to that was going to be his dad, Bruce, who's a legend in his own right. Bruce and I started having these conversations and he ended up always calling me at like three in the morning. Out of the blue, I'd be in bed. My phone rings. It says Bruce Glover. And then he's like, Justin, you're a vampire like me. Hopefully this isn't bothersome. And he'd say, I just thought of this story. And, and he would tell me a story about Crispin when he was like four. 
and it's not being recorded. It's two in the morning. I have no way to to capture any of these incredible tales that he's telling me. I don't know if he was kind of just refreshing himself on it or what, or what he thought I had the capability to do on my end to capture and preserve this stuff. But he was he, probably three or four times he would call me in the absolute middle of the night and just rant on a story for like two hours. And it was always amazing. And it, none of it end, ever ended up happening. We didn't end up doing the Crispin piece. So I didn't end up filming either of them for it, which is kind of a bummer. That was definitely a strange one. Uh, when I On that same release, I did a commentary with the Rat Trainers, which is one of my favorite commentaries I've ever done. Those guys were absolutely fascinating. And it blew me away that they had never been asked to be a part of anything like that before. They were nervous coming in. And I'm like, you guys are legends. They have hundreds of movies under their belts. Every animal film you can imagine, they've been a part of, it seems like. So there's so much to discuss. And then it became the most interesting wall-to-wall conversation with both of them. And that was really treasured too. But a little strange. And I'm sure it's one that not a lot of people have hit play on. But I would encourage you to because it's fascinating. It has some really great stories in there. So there's always something weird with all of them. Is there a bucket list interview that you haven't done yet? One that you're like, I cannot wait to interview this person. Or have you already achieved that? It's, again, back to the Roger Corman thing. I was watching your eyes sparkle when you were talking about it. The first person that I wanted to interview, the first interview that I that I went out to get was actually Dick Miller back in the day. That was the very first person that I ever wanted to interview. I've always been such a huge fan of his. And that's how I met him and how I met Lainey. The first published interview film-wise ended up John Harrison on Day of the Dead on his score for that film. So that that was a big one for me early on. But I have, I mean, I've had the opportunity, so lucky to connect with so many people, so many unexpected people. The one that I'm continuing to work on is Nicolas Cage. I have been tirelessly promoting Bringing Out the Dead and getting that released on a proper disc and uh, that was the very first thing in my first conversation just about with Paramount when I got on there is like, okay, okay, is bringing out the dead on the list. So that one I'm still campaigning for and trying to get it all together to to bring that one across the finish line. I would say it would be him. I, there are guys that I love like Stephen King, but what do you say to Stephen King now? Everything's been written. He's been asked every single question under the sun. I know more about him than my own family. What more could I ask? I, yeah, I mean, I think at this point it would just be Nicolas Cage. Well, thank God you're talking about bringing out the dead and not leaving Las Vegas because leaving Las Vegas is such a depressing movie. I don't <laughs> care how you spin it. It's just so sad. It is so good. So good, but so, so sad. Yeah, well acted, but whew. yeah. I was going to ask you, but you've already answered it, which is great because that's what I think we try to accomplish throughout these interviews is for ourselves and hopefully for our audience too, to, to learn about who we're talking with. Because I was going to ask you, like, you know, do you see yourself staying in the path that you're on or is it more of a come what may but what what I've learned is is you are just along for the ride and and down for whatever this I don't know I don't want to say genre this uh, the, the entertainment industry has to offer you it's such a weird thing to think about because it really was that. It has been that for so long, almost like you're a ship without a rudder a little bit. You're at the mercy of the sea. And I'm so grateful and fortunate for what I've bumped into in that over time. Because that's really, as I said, even back to like that ad in the newspaper to Malik, Halloween, to, to everything, uh, to Cliff and Jeff at that convention, I really almost literally am bumping into things in the sea. What I'm really trying to do now though, after what is it like 10 or 11 years of doing this is I'm trying to start 
cultivating things as opposed to just bumping into them. And so I do have some ventures that I've been very, very hard at work on that, I, that I'm not talking about at all in until everything is 100% in motion or the first phase of it is done. That's one thing I learned is that it's okay. Stephen King has this saying that he says, write with the door closed, edit with the door open. Meaning, I think it's important that we spend time with our own process until it's seen through. Because we co-opt so much in our lives through our days. We're watching movies with phone in hand. We're having conversations with people and gathering feedback. I see people say, well, in this film, we're thinking about having two monsters. Vote yes if you want two monsters. Vote no if you want one. Stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, a big part of what I have wanted to do is just sort of trust myself and be with myself. Try to go where go where my heart is leading me with people that I feel my heart is connected to do stuff that that matters and that feels good instead of just what's going to make me money or what's immediately at hand and so the things I'm working on right now I'm deeply passionate about and there are things that I can be in control of not just on a creative basis but also hopefully a long-term financial basis because the the flip side of all this stuff that we're talking about as wonderful as it all is is that I'm not getting rich off doing special features and stuff (laughs) it's very much a gig it's a gig it is and some entities you have to chase that paycheck and that can become almost like a part-time job of its own just trying to get paid from some folks and i'm ready for those days to be fewer you know those the the relationships where you have to hunt down that's not what i care about you know i just want to live i just want to be able to pay for the house and food for the kids and if the bottom fell out on this tomorrow i have what i need in life here i I can create here i can do this like you talk about the drive-in here i can make movies here doesn't need to be this grander scale if it doesn't want to be. So that part of it is still very much in the hands of fate in those waters that I mentioned. Creatively, what I'm trying to do is steer some things that I'm a, a little more all in personally on instead of just being hired to do. That's what I feel is the next step. And that's what I've been working toward. Brian and Jason, I don't know if you agree with this statement, but I've always said that you remember the journey, not the destination. The journey is more fun than the destination. But to expand on what Justin just said, I think we're all around the same age and we have families. And so when we start to get older, you do have to kind of think about the destination a little more and um, the, the financial security part of that you brought up, you know, not making money. And Brian, you and I have had multiple conversations about this is every once in a while, like I love all this crazy stuff that we do, but every once in a while, I'm like, you know what? Show me the money. I'm tired. <laughs> I really struggle. I'm, I'm telling you, man, it is my greatest struggle. I, I, I uh, have had, I have ADHD all my life. I, it's not something that I've talked about is like, well, you know, woe is me because it's blessed me in so many ways to be able to keep so many plates spinning at one time with whatever I'm doing, which is a daily thing. The greatest, single greatest struggle that I have is not a financial one. It is not, not that I'm, it's the pull out of my office. It's the pull to the family because I want to be with them. I don't have an office to go to where I can just feel like this is normal. I'm going, I'm clocking into work. I'll be away for nine hours and then I'll return. Everybody expects that. Everyone understands when I'm there, I'm working. When you work in the house, it's that double-edged sword. My office is definitely a wonderful space that I love to create in. But man, I got to tell you, the draw, I just keep getting pulled upstairs. My heart, my head, it keeps wanting to lead me there. And that can make it very, very challenging when it comes to getting everything done all the time. I mean, there are, it's, uh, it's this 
pull. I don't know how people manage it who have done, who have had long careers in something that is so isolated with all the editing and stuff that I have to do. And some of it I can do like writing. I can sit out back on the porch and everybody can be playing around me and whatever. I can do that. But when it comes to editing, I have to have all the gear around me and all the drives. So I can't, I have to be in the office then. And I, and I feel a little bit like I'm casting myself away in an island a lot of that time. So it is a challenging emotionally for me a lot of the time just because of what it means to isolate myself from the people that I really care about. Because that's where I'm most present is with them. I think one of the things that helps me because I edit most of our full length stuff and Clint helps with commercials and clips and he's my set of ears on the side because editing when I listen to it is different than when he listens to the after it's done because I hear it different. I'm going through it second by second is hopefully at the end of the day and putting something out that A, I can be proud of, B, that my family can be proud of and C, showing my children and my family and my friends that I can go to work, I can be a good dad and I'm doing something and I'm showing my children hard work and passion will pay off. I'm not anybody. I don't, I could go to an event of a thousand people and nobody's going to know me there. They may know me from my work in healthcare for the last 20 years, but they're not going to know me from the podcast. But showing my children that if you're passionate about something, push that passion, make it something that you do and enjoy. And if you're passionate enough and you work hard enough, it's going to lead to an experience. And Clint and I have talked about that a lot. Without this podcast, I may have met you, but without the PFPN, I would have never met you. Would never would have become friends. I wouldn't have got to go to flashback and stand next to, you know, Ivan and uh, the other lady from Night of the Comet and cut a short for the show and interview people on the Orpheum stage. Without any of this, I'm not doing any of that, you know, and just that passion and drive and pass that on to the next generation, my children. It's a great perspective. Yeah, that's what pushes me through the day, you know, because yeah, indeed, I'm sitting here with headphones on for an hour at a time with the door closed. Like what I'm going to do is when, when we're done with this recording, I'm going to run right upstairs and interact with my daughters. What are we doing today? Do you guys need something to eat? What's going on? Is homework done? How I balance everything. And I used to get lost in, man, I've got no me time. Like I do all this stuff, but because I run right to them, like you're talking about doing Justin being pulled up there, I have no me time. But then I sat down and realized, I was like, well, what does me time mean? Does me time mean that I'm sitting in the back patio staring at the clouds or that I'm cleaning the garage or what the hell? Then I was like, this is my me time. Time. This is how I choose to spend my me time. Yeah, that's never the me time for thing for me is pretty minimal. I haven't ever felt I, I totally get that. And I think that the family time is also me time because it, it's, it's for me, it's about where you connect the most. And when I, I mentioned the mountains in Idlewild earlier, throughout the year, a couple of times I'll go up there for a weekend just by myself after working in LA for a week to decompress and also to have unfiltered time to do some writing, to wander around in the woods, to, you know, whatever. There's great hiking up there. There's That to me is a little bit of a recharge and that happens a few times throughout the year. But really, I mean, my, my whole heart is with the family. Family and, uh, you know, I mean, I don't feel the, the draw to, to be off on my own somewhere or to have my space. And, and what I'm doing, it, it, it's so creatively fulfilling that I feel like that box is checked. And I know that for me, that's such an important thing for 
for my whole life. It has been like you asked some questions about when I got into writing and whatever earlier, back to when I was little, that has been built into me in various forms is some kind of creative outlet output. This has given me that and then some for sure. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to be doing all that I am. It's just a uh, Sometimes finding that balance is a little bit tough, and I'm not sure that's a dance I'm ever going to figure out. <laughs> Until then, just holding on and seeing where this takes. Like I say, the journey is definitely more fun than the destination, but I'm excited to hear that you are kind of purposely cultivating some things that it sounds like I won't be able to drag out of you like I did your wrestling reverend story. Oh, God. <laughs> We look forward to seeing what's going on with that stuff. Besides reverendentertainment.com, where can people stay in touch with you and, and, and all things Justin Beam? On social media, on Twitter or Instagram and Facebook, just my name. My last name is B-E-A-H-M. Post on there. And if anybody ever wants to reach out, has questions, suggestions, feedback, or whatever, by all means, hit me up. I have it open in all places to be able to reach out to me. And I love to hear from folks and have those conversations that we talked about loving at conventions and appearances and stuff like that. I, I really love that stuff. And I'll be at Midwest Monster Fest again this year. Uh, I don't think Jeff's announced that yet, but I'll be, um, as of this recording, but I'll be there and a big part of what's going on on the stage there, even more so this time than the last time. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope to see a bunch of folks there. I'm sure, Brian, you guys will be there. Well, and just to let the audience know, he is not, Justin is not bullshitting about Reach Out with questions. I, I met him once in person. And if you remember at the beginning of this show, I said, Justin's a hugger. Yes, he is. <laughs> Hey, Justin, I want to thank you for taking the time out. I mean, of what one can only guess is your extremely crazy busy schedule. We love learning a little bit more about, you know, the diversity of everything you're involved with. Uh, thank you very much for being here with us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a delight. And I love the, the way that this went is so unexpected and fun and uh, appreciate everything you guys. You guys are the best. So, you, you know, someone else who is as diverse as the life of Justin Bean, our podcast network, the PFPN. So let's hear from them. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening So now that we've heard from our podcast network, time for a little This Day in Horror History. A date which will live in infamy. So on this episode of This Day in Horror History, we are covering the two weeks after the show. I don't know what the hell the dates are because I write down what's happening in history and then I forget when the fucking podcast comes out, even though I edit it and publish it and Clint has to listen to it before I put it out. Give me ideas because I'm an idiot. Well, June 25th. You got anything good on June 25th? Nothing on June 25th. But on June 29th, Gary Busey was born and Ray Harryhausen was born. You know Ray Harryhausen? Special effects master. No? You know him, Jason? No. No, I'm too I'm too mainstream. Clash of the Titans on TBS growing up? No. 
Clint? Stop motion animation pioneer. What's that? You don't do this. Do they hold still? Like stop motion? So they just stand there still? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I've seen that. Kind of like earlier when we were interviewing Justin Beam and all of a sudden at the cliffhanger moment, he just freeze framed. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. We needed Ray Harryhausen then to fix that. Yeah, it's like when Michael Myers is in the first Halloween and he just fucking stands there the whole movie. It's kind of like that. Then on uh, July 2nd, it's a big day. 1980, Alligator was released. 1986, Big Trouble in Little China. 97, Men in Black. It's a pretty good day. I mean, Big Trouble in Little China is not really horror, but it's horror enough. I mean, it's John Carpenter. And then in 1995, a friend of our guest earlier, Justin Beam, Andrew Deerdorf was born in 1955. I don't think I said, but you remember him from the Wish Yeah, Divoff. Yeah. Divoff. Yeah. (laughs) That guy from the Wishmaster. (laughs) <laughs> Wishmaster 2, and I don't know how many Wishmasters they made, but the first one's really good. You guys don't know how to pronounce the names, what fucking day it is. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> and then in July 8th, in 1988, Phantasm 2 was released. And in 2005, The Descent was released. I like both of those movies. I want to watch Phantasm. Is that the one with the Barracuda, the car that they blow up? Yeah. It pisses, it pisses everybody off because they blew that car up. And then... Kevin Bacon was born in 1958. This will be your favorite. Paul, who played Paul in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, was born in 1938. Paul Conan? Honestly, I I, I don't know the last name. I know Paul. I know exactly what you're talking about, but I don't remember his last name. I'd have to look it up. He played Paul. Great writing. Paul played Paul. Yeah, most of the actors in that, their characters' names were their names. Because the movie was so great. They didn't need to come up with different names. No, they didn't need a story. Have you seen Ch- Children Shouldn't Play With That Thing, Jason? Somebody told me to watch that. No, so no, I haven't. But I remember having a conversation with a coworker one time, and they were talking about that movie. And they're like, oh, you need to watch that movie. And I'm like, oh, okay, I will. And then I think I started watching it, and then I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I didn't watch it. <laughs> so it was, and I know when we were talking about Brian Hoover and his art, all that, you guys were talking about that. I was like, fuck, I need to watch that movie. And I still need to watch that movie. And No, well, I, I'm going to force you to because um, someday in the near future, I'd like to have Brian on, on the show and allow him to pick a movie. And I almost guarantee that's what he's going to pick. If he doesn't, I'm going to like secretly make him pick that. <laughs> I'm down. He probably went to YouTube and was like, code orange. Oh, shit. They got fucking fall leaves at Michael's. They got orange colored leaves at Michael's. Let's go, Tanya. Let's go shopping. Do they really? I got to go. Bye. (laughs) You know what I've been wondering besides the interview portion of this episode? What the fuck is going on? anything jason i feel like i should just record something and we'll just play it every time it's my turn to talk (laughs) i don't know i don't even know where to go with that we're just kind of do you have anything jason about what going on what's what's going on this is the what's going on segment (laughs) (laughs) i am so dumb weren't you talking about how we have like cues to each other like we know like we can kind of there's just like a little thing that we know that what's going on I'm fucking clueless. <laughs> We're aware. <laughs> oh, well. So I was informed um, last episode that there was uh, something called July. And uh, 
<laughs> like, I, I, I know, you know, July 4th, that's, that's something, right? American independence is coming up. So I'll go watch some fireworks. That'll be coming up about, you know, a little over a week after we put this out. And then July 4th is also exactly one month from flashback. Now we're down to like four weeks or whatever, 30 days, whatever. Other than that, no, nothing really going on. Just going to enjoy the summer. I don't have any big plans to go anywhere. Clint gets to go to all the cool shit up there because they got a year-round Halloween store and we're fucking Iowa, Illinois, and we don't have shit. I know someone who should change that. Oh, yeah. I know them too. They are a procrastinator, so... (laughs) (laughs) maybe someday nobody invited you to anything i know last episode you said and if you know something you guys can invite me to it oh yeah no radio radio silence like i forgot about that wait no we just put that episode out today so so i'm anticipating my phone to be blowing (laughs) up we'll talk about that next episode and i'll tell you about all the nuns of people that have called me or (laughs) messaged me invited you to anything Yeah, I'm pathetic. It's all right. Next episode, you can tell us about how you went to fucking Home Goods and Michaels and at home and all that stuff. I will do that. Wow. On my next episode of Why Am I So Poor? All the Code Orange merchandise. <laughs> That's all I got. Same as ever. Nothing. So let's see. I have Fourth July also because the whole fucking country celebrates that. The weekend before that, I'm going to be at the sale again that happens here in town. We set up the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast booth, talked to some people, made some sales. That goes on in Galesburg, Illinois, the first Sunday through the summer. I don't remember the address, but I will share it on the podcast, you know, socials. Made some sales, gave some business cards away, hopefully got a couple new listeners, making space for more stuff that I don't need. Um, and I think other than that, just doing some movies, judging the film festival for festival for Halloween of Palooza, anticipating flashback and our trip to Michigan and our trip to Snake Alley Festival of Film. But that's all upcoming. The only thing I have that's set in stone for the next two weeks is that sale and watching Clint have fun at Screamers and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Getting candy, getting frozen candy. And I'm like, what the hell? I want some frozen fucking candy, you know, and making friends and influencing people. Clint is out influencing people. We got a message from, uh, is it Macabre, Michigan? Pure Macabre, Michigan on Instagram. Yep. Pure Macabre. Yeah. With an MI. They said that they wanted to do business cards, but Clint had spooky buttons and Ink Mare's buttons. So they're doing buttons because they thought that was a great idea. And they thanked us for being so kind and welcoming and, you know, kind of getting some ideas from the podcast. Said Clint was cool and talked to him and they talked horror movies and all kinds of stuff. They were very thankful for us being so welcoming. That's all I got. What about you, Clint? What do you got? It's pretty cool because they've been sharing our stuff too. And I love meeting people and, and network. And I love meeting people who will do the same thing that I like to do. And that's just cross promote and promote stuff. Uh, you know, I said it before, if all of us supported each other, we could all get these crazy ideas that we have off the ground. Influencer though. Jeez, hmm, well, that seems kind of, kind of fancy. Add that title to my list. <laughs> just kidding. What do I got going on? Let's see. You know what? Uh, so we're into July now, right? Yeah. Last week of June, uh, first week of July, I've got a whole month of nothing and that's actually really cool because i'm gearing up for motor city nightmares at the end of july in detroit gearing up for the weekend after that flashback in chicago so i got a lot of inkmirrors.com restocks and hopefully time for new creations to happen i've got some uh 
some new t-shirt designs. I've got some new uh, novelty toys I've been wanting to make. I just haven't had time. And that's about it. I actually have a, a week off from va- a week off vacation from work, but I wasn't able to book where I wanted to go. The day job actually might be going on strike here at the end of July, beginning of August. So I think I'm going to go ahead and work my vacation and uh, you know just to save up a little extra cash in case I'm on the picket line not getting a paycheck. What else? Man, just editing the news. And uh, I do think I'm going to pick up a second job, though, so I can afford to buy you guys, uh, you know, calendars (laughs) and calculators. (laughs) Maybe dry erase boards. I don't know. Whatever the hell's whatever the hell's going to help. Speech lessons, um, memory classes. Yeah, we, we need a lot of help. I used to think it was just financial counseling we needed, but I don't know. I guess there's more. I guess we need more. That's about it. That's all I got going on. Well, now that you've heard why we're poor, the news, our interview with Justin Beam about our podcast network, This Day in Horror History, what we're up to or what Jason's not up to, don't forget to check out the I Like Spooky Horror podcast on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook and TikTok and YouTube. Listen to the Spill Your Guts segment of the show Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Take care. Bye bye. Please invite me to something. <laughs> I can't I can't follow that up. Please please invite him to something. I probably won't come, but anyway. He won't. <laughs>